Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Failure Peace Theater. I am your amiable co-host, Tim, and joining me is... Catherine. And we are here this week, uh, a little bit of a different episode, to talk about something that came up during our As Above, So Below episode, a TV show that I'm a big fan of, and that I found out that uh, my sister, Catherine, had never seen, and that is The River. So this week, we're going to actually be talking about doing a bit of a deep dive into a TV show but one that still kind of fits our failure piece criteria uh, because we are your podcast for discussions of the misbegotten, the forgotten, the lost treasures of Hollywood, the sort of cinematic misfires that still have a little bit of merit, reason to watch them. And, and this show, in my opinion, falls into that almost perfectly. Um, we're going to be talking about, as I said, The River, a 2012 ABC-produced um, actually, a lot of different companies produced an ABC TV show um, that is, for all intents and purposes, a found footage horror show made for network television. Uh, it lasted one season, eight episodes, uh, apparently eight very expensive episodes, and that's all we got. But maybe, for me, one of the best sort of found footage things ever. Um, so we're going to discuss it this week. Um, I'm going to talk about it with Catherine, who has been able to go through the entire show. So it took us a little bit of extra time to uh, review and, and get into it. But uh, so what did you think? Initial impressions of the river? I love the premise. I mean, mm -hmm. I am the right age to be a huge fan of Steve Irwin. And uh, Bruce Greenwood is, is definitely trying to hit the Steve Irwin vibes with that character. And so it, it just, it's very entertaining, this, this idea. Um, so I was kind of hooked just on what you explained, I think, in the course of our episode. And then that first episode that I then watched of the show was pretty awesome. Kind of don't understand why it wasn't a bigger deal, but then we'll talk about that, I guess. Yeah, I'm sure it'll come up. And I think a lot of the parties involved were a bit surprised that it wasn't a big deal. But uh, so let's let's lay it out. Right. So the river is a 2012 show um, done in the found footage style. That focuses on the sort of estranged, misbegotten family of a, a television naturalist. Right. A Steve Irwin, a Marty Stauffer, a Jacques Cousteau. Yeah who established himself as, you know, this, this pioneer guy who would go into these places and his catchphrase was, there's, there's magic, magic out, out there. there. That was, that's right. what did it. I was, that was a nice touch, especially. Right. So I, I think we're both together and, and we talked about this a little bit during, uh, you know, our last episode, but, um, you know, I am, I'm with you. For me, found footage is infinitely better when the premise that is getting these people together and sort of supporting the found footage environment makes sense, right? It's what worked for Blair Witch, uh, you know, these three kids going out to film this little mini documentary for school. It's entirely plausible. It justifies why they have the cameras. It justifies their purpose for being there. It, it sort of handles, ticks all the boxes that you need to be able to tick. Whereas something like Cloverfield, which, you know, I'm, I don't know, pick on because it's a fine film i like matt reese as a director a lot 
but it's much much harder to justify when it's oh we were a bunch of people at a party and you know tj miller happens to have a camera (sighs) and then we're just going to record this crazy event for the rest of the night because we have a camera that works less for me yeah i love cameras and i would still ditch the camera on that occasion and i just yeah that was so i couldn't stop thinking about it And that's right. bad. When I'm, I'm thinking about that rather than what's going on in your movie, that's bad. Exactly. And, um, and a lot of found footage films have this, this problem. Uh, we talked about it with As Above, So Below. It's a similar thing. You know, we're making this mini documentary about this amazing event. We've got to have these cameras. But even that film struggles with, okay, you're just trying to escape with your lives now. Just, just ditch the cameras. And there's certainly a bit of that here, too. But I think it's backgrounded enough and justified enough that it kind of worked. Because the basic premise for the show is that Bruce Greenwood's main character, Dr. Emmett Cole, goes missing. Right? So this naturalist who spent his whole life in front of the camera explaining things and showing the magic of the world to the people um, goes missing in the Amazon. He had excised most of his crew, sort of the people who typically hung with him. He took a new group of people down with him to the Amazon for some reason. He's estranged from his wife. He's estranged from his son, who had been a huge part of his show. And, you know, they kind of watched the son grow up. Now they don't want anything to do with him, seemingly. And he goes to the Amazon and he goes missing. Right? Nobody's heard from him for six months. And the show actually opens with his memorial. Right, they're they're mourning Dr. Emmett Cole. That's the the news feed that we get to to kick the show off. And uh, you know the son is attempting to to reconcile that, and then they show up, and the show kicks into gear when a TV producer that worked with uh, their father back in the day and uh, the mother, the, the wife of Emmett Cole, show up and tell the son that hey, Emmett's GPS beacon went off. And we're going to go down to the Amazon to try and find him. But they'll only pay for it, right? The TV studio will only be involved and back the expedition if the whole family goes and every single moment of the expedition is recorded. So there's your, 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 le- your lug line. That's it. You, we're all going. Everything has to be recorded, top to bottom. Nothing missed. It's just the, the sort of thing that yeah. would happen. Like, it's a very, it's a believable premise because I can see us doing that. Oh, I would think so. I mean, if we had somebody who was sort of internationally renowned go missing and then we had this possibility that they were going to be able to be found, sure, a studio would pay for that. Um, you know, so the, the opening is very, well, we have to mention the, the production team you know what how did this come to be uh so i did a bit of background research and and you know the show's listed creators are oren pelli and michael perry uh michael perry being a, a longtime tv producer and oren pelli of course being the creator of the paranormal activity series which when this show was in development which would have been 2011 um they were right in the middle of developing you know what would become the, the primary paranormal activity arc I think two had come out, three had come out, and you know done very well. You know, pretty much they were they were all you know sort of big, huge bombshell hits. Really until about four, that's where people were like, eh, I don't know if this is working. These might anymore. be stupid. 
<laughs> yeah, this might not be that great. Uh, but Pelai was hot. Um, and when, when you're hot in Hollywood, you get meetings, lots and lots of meetings. And uh, uh, Pelai, when this story came out, or when this show came out, there was a story in Hollywood Reporter sort of asking, you know, how did this come to be? And he said basically he got called to see Steven Spielberg because Spielberg was interested in his work. And Jason Blum and, and Steven Spielberg know each other, I believe. Um, and so he's sitting in a room with Steven Spielberg, and, and Spielberg's like, you know, I, I really love Paranormal Activity. I think it's a great energy. Let's do some TV together because TV doesn't have anything like this. Um, there's nothing like this on television, and and I think we could find something here. This was Spielberg's so, got to be on TV fix. Yeah, um, you know, Spielberg and Amblin Entertainment is, is a semi-regular producer of, of television entertainment. They certainly keep their, their toes in it if they yeah. don't do it a ton. And and so he wanted to, to work with them and put something together, and so... Uh, Pella supposedly had kind of had this idea of, of you know going down into the the jungle to find a missing you know naturalist or, or scientist or whatever you want to call it, but it just shelved it. Um, and he sits down with Michael Perry and and they basically sort of flesh the idea out, and that's what becomes the river. And it all came together from what I can tell very quickly. You know, pretty much everybody shook hands, said. Yeah, we're just, we're gonna make a show. We don't really care what it is, and and we're gonna go. But it's because Spielberg looked at the television landscape and said, "There's nothing like this out there. Let's do it." And I, I've gone ahead and pulled the TV ratings for the 2012-2013 television season, which was uh, the River was a mid-season replacement. You know, eight episodes were all they purchased. Came in mid-season to replace other shows that have been canceled. But the shows that made the most money had the best ratings in 2012-2013. Um, any guesses? Anything from that era that you think might be on there? Uh, a CSI show? Close. Uh, NCIS. Oh, the uh, other CSI. Both variants, yes. The CSI for uh, people who love Mark Harmon. Well, don't we all? We Yeah. We all do. I mean, I won't um, lie. I, I like to put that show on when I want to be unconscious for many hours. I'll put that on my iPad, oh, fall asleep. Sure. It is absolutely the perfect show to the fall asleep to. The dulcet tones of Mark Harmon, ladies <laughs> and gentlemen. But uh, indeed, we have uh, NCIS, both the, the original and the Los Angeles variant uh, on the top 25. I can't get behind that one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't know, Chris O'Donnell? You can't get behind Christopher <laughs> Yard needs <Ray> O'Donnell. <laughs> Greatest um, line in television history. LL Cool J. Investigating. He's They're investigating someone. And his first comment is, Yard needs Rakin. Yard needs Rakin. Obviously. He's a I great mean, investigator. Like, they're, yeah, they, they sure do. Yeah, I mean, that's... To be a quality Genius. investigator, you should be paying attention to the landscaping at all times. Yard. You never know what you might discover. Where's that rake? <laughs> um, that was bad. And I'm focusing on network shows here, right? Now, yeah. now this this is very much in the the latter, you know, sort of basic cable renaissance for premium TV, 
right? So um, I've never been able to afford like any sort of satellite or cable. So before streaming services made all of this possible, I just didn't watch anything. Nothing was on network television, so I have no concept of what was on cable TV at the time. Um, the Walking Dead was going. Oh. So, I mean, there was there was horror on TV. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there were like three or four seasons in at this point. Um, maybe a few more. But uh, Breaking Bad was coming to an end in, I want to say in 2012. I don't remember that timeline because I watched that on streaming service as well. I didn't watch it when it was out live. Um, but so like, we're, we're talking about network TV because that's what this show was. This was a, this aired on a major American network, um, not on, you know, locked behind a cable paywall, you know, not with a thing that flashed up beforehand and said, oh, it's your audiences only, you know, nothing like that. This is just a regular basic TV show. So we've got the NCISs. Uh, what do you think the number one show in America was in 2012 that everybody lo- watched and loved? This may tell you something. Um, like a drama or just any TV show? Just any TV show. Because Ameri- the vast majority of the top 25 are not dramas. American Idol. Uh, that is definitely up there. That's six and seven. American Idol Wednesdays That's and number Thursdays. number one. Well, apart from football. Oh. We're going to leave football off. because That doesn't count. The Big Bang Theory. Ew. Which was number one for a very long time, so this was not terribly surprising. But Ew. Uh, if we're looking at actual television shows, we've got Big Bang Theory, Modern Family, which was on ABC. Um, it was ABC's top show. Their top drama, um, ABC's top drama was Grey's Anatomy, uh. you know, which is an you know adult hospital procedural. You know, so whatever. Um, I think Desperate Housewives was still on at this time, but it was it's not on the you know top twenty five list because it had sort of peaked and was falling. I think the only um, time I watched that was was Kyle McLaughlin briefly on that show. He was on it for quite some time, yeah. a couple of years. Yeah. yeah, like I I I tuned in with mom and dad when they watched because he was on it, but mm-hmm. that's about it. I don't I don't think I followed plots or anything. I just wanted to look at his face. Um. We've got uh, the following on Fox, which was the uh, you know briefly lived Kevin, Kevin Bacon. Williamson, uh, Kevin Bacon, and uh, that is it. Purefoy was that his last name? That show made me irrationally angry because it was just it was a lot of high school freshman English class Edgar Allan Poe knowledge, and yes, <laughs> it was just too much. <laughs> Nevermore. I read a book in ninth grade once too. They did, and and that's why it connected with so many. <laughs> um, uh, NBC had Revolution, it had Two Broke Girls, How I Met Your Mother. Um, ABC had Once Upon a Time going. Um, but I mean, this is this is the landscape it, uh, that this little show finds itself in. Bleak. And it, yeah, I mean, it's it's basically a lot of the the very typical, you know, sort of standard dramas. That you would see, and then just half-hour sitcoms, which is not surprising. I mean, there's nothing surprising about those shows being super popular. They're engineered to be popular. But I, I wonder about a show like The River being successful in a landscape like that, even yeah. marginally so. 
So, you know, our premise is this naturalist has gone missing in the Amazon. The family goes down to find him. And they they enter into uh, a place within the Amazon that we come to know as the Boyuna. And the Boyuna is a sort of dangerous place. At least that's what we're told. Um, there's a lot of uh, you know, almost a Bermuda Triangle-esque quality to it. You know, the people that go in don't always come out. Um, and if they do, they come out changed. That Yeah, something's different. So our, our cast is large, right? This is a pretty big cast for a show like this. I, I think the cast makes it work. I think if it was just, you know, your sort of trio every week, you know, or some sort of core trio like Blair Witch Project, I don't think it would be very good. Like, there just wouldn't be enough variety. But this way, we can kind of shift around. We can look at different perspectives. Um, but so the cast of the, the show proper... Uh, I guess our main character is really uh, Emmett Cole's son, uh, played by Joe Anderson, uh, Lincoln Cole, who is studying to be a medical doctor, but a research-focused doctor. Right? He doesn't want to be in the field. There's this this sort of common theme throughout the entire show that Lincoln has this tremendous amount of, let's say, sort of pent-up rage at being touted out on the world stage for his whole life and uh, you know feeling basically exploited by his father so he doesn't want to be in the limelight anymore he doesn't want to be in front of people he just wants to quietly do his work and help people right he still wants to do that but he wants to sort of do it behind the scenes um, we've got his mother Tess uh, who was estranged from Emmett for reasons that become uh, understood as the season ends um, but she's sort of the, the spearhead of this expedition. She's the one that's sort of, uh, you know, the leader, really. Um, we have the television producer, played by Paul Blackthorne, who he's a pretty regular TV guy. Um, he had a, a long run on Arrow as uh, Arrow's love interest dad, I think. I think he's like a police detective. Uh, doesn't really matter. Um, but he's there as Clark Quitely, uh, the producer of the TV show. Um, so he's the one that's sort of leading the camera crews and assembling the footage, and et cetera. Um, sort of halfway through the first episode, we're introduced to uh, Lena Landry, who is played by Eloise Mumford, and she is the daughter of the main camera guy for the crew as Lincoln was growing up, right? So, sort of like Emmett's long-standing camera guy. And so she was always around, and you know, there's definitely some romantic tension between her and Lincoln, among other things, and they're just kind of long-standing childhood friends. Um, then we have the engineer and his daughter. The engineer's the main guy that took care of the ship, and he's got a young daughter that comes with him. <coughs> she becomes important um, for a, a bunch of different reasons. I have some um, questions there, about her. Yeah, there's, there's, she's the, the weakest part of the show, unfortunately they hang a lot on her and it doesn't really work. I mostly um, just want to know, can they understand her or can't they? Because it comes and goes depending on the episode, whether they right. can understand her or they're just smiling and nodding while she speaks to them. And also does she understand them? Because that's also different in different episodes. 
So yeah, she, she seems to be able to understand people who speak English at her. Uh, there's a, a big joke in the first episode about one of the camera guys trying to introduce himself and flubbing it, and she makes a joke about yeah. the American education system. And then there was another um, one later where, uh, in a couple episodes later, where somebody was like, "You don't understand anything I'm saying, do you?" And she like laughs like she doesn't understand it and i'm like wait i thought she did yeah so it again it, it gets a little bit weird as a character they like i said they, they hang a lot on her because she's the one that seems to have all of the knowledge about what the boyana is yeah and what's happening there and again there's a late sort of series reveal about you know her past and abilities that she may have that you know, kind of goes somewhere, but kind of doesn't at the same time. But she provides a, a tremendous amount of exposition in the show um, when it doesn't necessarily seem like she should be able to. She's like fifteen. Yeah. So, but who knows? Um, but so it's it's the engineer and his daughter, and then we have some camera guys who are characters on the show, which I really like. You know, we get to know them a bit, but they are often behind the camera. And, uh, you know, sort of doing their thing. But every once in a while, they'll flip and, and you know, we'll kind of see the camera person from the other pers- other camera's perspective, etc. Um, but then the last and potentially most mysterious character who we don't really get much closure on is Captain Kurt Brindledson, uh, a private bodyguard hired to protect the group. We're, I guess we're meant to believe the TV company hired him or Tess hired him. For some reason, but his um, his background and, and where he comes from and who's footing the bill for him to be there is a bit nebulous throughout the show. Uh, but he's played by Thomas Kretschmann, who now is probably best known for playing Baron von Strucker in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the, the scientist who created um, Wanda and uh, the Quicksilver character mm-hmm. in Avengers: Age of Ultron. So that's probably what most people know him for now. Um, but he's been around for a long time. He's done a, a whole bunch of stuff. And he's, he's quite good. And he's really intense and cool in this show. He gets a lot of uh, neat action. But so that's our, our primary cast, which, again, is large for a show that you know, is obviously trying to be sort of medium-budgeted. Um, but Pelai said that this show and even the pilot was more expensive than any film that he had been involved in. Um, by a pretty wide margin, which for the first paranormal activity, that's not saying much. You made that movie for like $15,000 and nobody makes anything for $15,000 in Hollywood. Hence the success. Uh, I imagine the second film was more, you know, in the million to $2 million range, but, but still, uh, this was apparently a very expensive show, much like lost, right? Which in many ways, this feels like a, a studio executive trying to, recreate that lost magic right tropical location mysterious weird supernatural elements decent sized cast uh, with lots of different interaction capabilities you know it feels like you could see a, a studio executive at abc sort of licking his chops and saying mm, mm, <laughs> a little bit of that lost action back and then it, it doesn't happen at all um so you know the show and its production uh, there are a tremendous amount of, of people involved in the production of this. Um, a lot of TV shows, as far as like on the executive producing side, you know, you're looking mostly at a TV studio, right? It's, that's who pays for TV shows. But this one's kind of all over the place. 
So the listed executive producers are Pelai, Jason Bloom, who was attached to Pelai through the paranormal activity stuff. Don't know how involved he was, but probably part of his deal for Pelai in Hollywood was that, you know, hey, I get attached to all your stuff. Bloom very famously likes multifaceted deals with his creatives. Um, he Bloom told a story about, um, oh, the guy who directed uh, Whiplash, right? Because Jason Bloom produced Whiplash with that guy. And then uh, he had a production assistant who failed to set up a meeting with the director of that. And because of that meeting miss and him not being able to sort of secure that guy's next project, which he was willing to do sight unseen, um, he lost La La Land. He would have been the producer on La La Land oh. if if this this production assistant had not missed setting up this meeting and the guy and then another studio got to him first and took it. So I mean, like he's he's very aggressive about that kind of stuff, which makes a certain amount of sense given the, the business that he's in. So we've got Jason Bloom in there. We've got the standard, you know, sort of ABC Studios folk. And then we've got Michael Green and Steven Spielberg, which at the time, Michael Green was not really that big of a deal. Um, and he, I guess you could argue that he's not really that big of a deal now. But <laughs> um, he, he had been a writer on uh, a couple of shows, uh, Smallville, uh, he did Everwood for a couple of seasons, you know, a lot of the CW show type stuff. But then he did Kings, uh, which was another show that we could probably talk about because it was a decent show, sort of loosely based on the story of David and King Saul. Uh, I want to say that was one of the first things that uh, I remember paying attention to Ian McShane in. Um, you know, Ian McShane's been around forever, obviously, but you know, that was one of the first things I remember watching and being like, that guy's really cool. I, I like him. Um, so he did Kings, then he did the river right after that, but he's gone on. He, uh, did the American gods television show with Brian Fuller first couple seasons, at least. Uh, I don't think he's on it anymore, but he has gone on to write a ton of movies that I've really enjoyed here lately. He did the Blade Runner 2049, uh, the Blade Runner sequel, which is, is good. I'm not gonna say it's amazing. I think it's, you know, I love Denis Villeneuve, so I love kind of everything he does in it. It's a really solid script. It's not amazing, but it's good. It's a pretty um, he movie. Did the, what's that? It's a pretty movie. Oh, it's gorgeous. Yeah, the movie looks amazing. Um, I, I actually got a notification that my my digital version got upgraded to 4K for free, mm. so I, I fired that up a couple nights ago and watched a good chunk of it just to... I should download that. ...bathe yeah. in the splendor. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he did. He wrote the Murder on the Orient Express remake with Kenneth Branagh, which was fine. It was really good. Uh, um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's it's a story that's been told many times. Yeah, I mean, you look at the better. source material, and it's mm. yeah. Um, among other things, so Michael Green has has become a, a pretty big deal screenwriter in Hollywood. Um, he he did write Alien Covenant, which. Nah, okay. Mm. It's it's better than Prometheus, mm. which doesn't take much. Uh, he, he did do the screenplay uh, to Logan with uh, James Mangold. Oh, you're forgiven. So, 
Yeah, so everything's fine. You're, you're amazing. <laughs> so Alien Covenant Weaver... was just a mistake, I see. I see. <laughs> Everybody makes mistakes, right? <laughs> um, but so Green is was not a big deal at the time, but he wrote a good chunk of these episodes. Um, and he wrote my favorite episode of the season, which a lot of people, I read some reviews, really hated, but episode six, uh, which when we talk about it and we get there, it's it could just be called Bruce Greenwood and a camera. Yeah. Um, and it's it's great. I love that episode. I know if it's one of the ones that you have to be the most forgiving for the whole concept of found footage and how could a person film this stuff, but I kind of don't care. It's It's fun. Um, so he wrote that one, and then of course the the final listed producer is Steven Spielberg through Amblin Entertainment. Uh, and as I mentioned, Spielberg simply thought that the world needed a little bit of found footage horror on their network television. Uh, which, if looking at the landscape of network television shows, I don't think he was right. But I'm certainly happy that he saw through to, to sort of give it a shot. Um, then we have some co-producers, and there's one co-producer I want to call out in specific. And that is Glenn Morgan. And I love Glenn Morgan and his frequent producing partner, James Wong. Because they are... Chris Carter created the X-Files. He built the engine sure. of the X-Files. But Glenn Morgan and James Wong made that engine hum. They're the ones who filled it up with gas every week and made that show work after the first couple seasons. And guys like Eric Kripke, I mean, The X-Files is a... Is, is a, a team effort. Yeah, it's a hodgepodge of just incredible folk all working at the top of their game. Um, but, but Glenn Morgan and James Wong, I, I think, you know, they're responsible for, you know, like the lone gunman and yeah. the, the fleshing out of that, the supernatural parts of that world. And I, the most I enduring things about the X Files are the things that they helped create. You know, because yes. nobody really likes to talk about the Mythos episodes anymore, because um, they're the weakest on the show. But everybody loves the Monster of the Week. Everybody loves those recurring characters. Everybody loves the, you know, kind of gentler world building rather than those big kind of story arc. The bullshit, basically, on the show. <laughs> Right. Yeah, I mean they've they've basically gone. They're the ones who who, you know, the episodes that have persisted, the ones that have have entered into the lexicon of greatest episodes ever. That's that's sort of what Glenn Morgan and James Wong are responsible for, and he is is involved in this he's listed as the co uh, co-executive producer which again you know in television a co-exec producer is really like an interfacing tool between the movie studio and or between the studio and the you know the, the actual like hard line the, the line producers right the people who are writing the checks and you know making sure the boat is at point a so that it can get to point b you know the co-execs are kind of in there and and you know, generally sort of heavily involved in the, the writer's room and making sure that, you know, scripts are getting cleared and stuff like that. Um, so Morgan is attached to this. He seems to me like the guy you bring in to be your episode closer, right? You've got your writing team in the room. You're 
putting together the story, you bring in Glenn Morgan to, to congeal those elements together and make sure that they work as a kind of cohesive whole, which for the most part, I, I think this show does. And, and it definitely has, especially in those middle episodes, which are problematic for a couple of reasons. It has that. Some of those episodes remind me of those early X-Files days, right? The yeah. sense of discovery. You know, I was thinking about like ice, you know, <laughs> like where they're just trapped in the, the thing, you know, trapped in the Arctic base. Everybody needs a thing episode. And it's, it, it had that, that feel for me, uh, at least a little bit. So, Why didn't this work? That's the question, right? We have a guy who is hot, hot, hot in Hollywood with Oren Pelai. Paranormal Activity is, is just screaming through the box office. Every October, we get a new Paranormal Activity, and it just makes buku bucks. Even the bad ones made buku bucks. So why doesn't this work? Why doesn't it find purchase? Um, Network television is a wasteland. Yeah, I mean... That's part of it, I think, for sure, is that network television I don't think was ready for this. My other sort of basic premise for this is I think the show is legitimately too scary for television. Um, because this is not a this is not a horrifying show. I mean, it is, you know, I'd say at best it's a TV 14 rating most of the time. I think by the end of the show, the last couple episodes of the series are flat out straight horror for 20 or at least that's what they're for 2012 for. i i think i agree because um when did american horror story land this would have been right around that time that show i think if this had maybe followed american horror story um that might have been i don't know that might have been that might have worked um, people may have been a little bit better prepared because, well, that came out in 2011, though. Yeah, no, this was this was a mid-season replacement in 2012. So American then, Horror Story would have been airing its first but season. But then that was on uh, FX was on. originally, wasn't it? Or was it on Fox? I can't remember. I didn't watch American TV. Horror Story? Yeah, was it on Fox mm, or FX? No, FX. No, it was cable. So, so really nothing... Nothing challenged this. I mean, I think now that it would play fine on network television because there's nothing else on. So there's there, but there was nothing. There was nothing quite as graphic as what you would see, like maybe five or six years later. Oh yeah, no, we hadn't quite hit the. You know, because we've had several television sea changes, right? Um, you know the. The 90s sort of destroyed the the sort of well, really Twin Peaks, right? So as, as far as like your your drama, soap opera, procedural, your your evening soap, right? I mean, because you know, I remember watching you know what Falcon Crest with my mom, Knots Landing, right? All these these crappy you know nighttime uh, soap operas, basically. So Twin Peaks hits in the early 90s and sort of destroys all of those, <laughs> throws the police procedural element into that soap opera setting. I mean, I've, I've read several, you know, solid articles that indicate that Seven was a watershed moment in film for violence True. and tying violence to police procedural and drama that then filtered its way down into television and gave rise to shows like CSI, which at the time 
shows like CSI were considered super violent, super violent. I mean, watching some, I mean, the, the first five minutes of every CSI episode is watching someone die horrifically. And, right? and that and then, unfortunately paved the way for, for terrible shows that are kind of disgusting, like Bones. Mm-hmm. Just Bones my God, the been, gross stuff yeah. that takes place on that show. So, yeah, I mean, there are. I guess there are all of these little moments that add up to to what we see on television now. Because I watch this show and I'm thinking, man, there's really nothing that scary in it. I don't, I didn't find it that scary. But then I guess network television in 2012 was totally different. And I guess, you know, rather than saying that it's scary, because I, I do think you're you're right, by modern horror standards... Even in the, the intervening eight or nine years that since this show's been out, this show's tame by comparison, right? But as a found footage horror artifact, especially from this time frame, I think it does a lot with a little and and is still pretty effective at what it does. Um, I will say that Criminal Minds was in that list of 25. It's way that's down on the list, show. but that's another you know show that attempts to have that kind of edgy horror component to it like bad edgy yeah it's not good um it's it's enjoyable i mean it's it, it can be a fun watch another one of those you know shows fall asleep too fast. yeah but, <laughs> i've seen uh, every episode but usually yeah. shortly before losing consciousness for the night i don't and so i don't know i i thought that this show was really appropriate like i i don't Maybe it's just that I'm I'm seeing things through a very modern lens, but I would have liked to have seen this on television. I would have thought other people would like this, I guess. Yeah, I, it may be one of those things that, you know, just gets buried in the network. I mean, usually if a show doesn't hit right away, um, you know, the they'll move it around and, and do whatever they need That's to do true. to sort of shuffle it off into its, <laughs> into its inevitable tomb. <laughs> but... Uh, the it, it really only aired I mean it's eight episodes it aired in February of 2012 through the end of March 2012 so we're really looking at like a month month and a half that this show was actually on television um, so it was not a large window with which to, to sort of engage and you know three or four episodes in you have somebody say hey I want you to check out this show called The River if you didn't do it immediately it was gone you know and this is is before streaming services. Netflix was certainly rate, you know gaining tremendous steam in 2012, and and people were getting that. But you know there was there wasn't a, a you know sort of plethora of streaming services out there where a show immediately went after it aired so that other people could catch up with it. I think that would have helped this show tremendously, just having that. Um, and and even today, it's it's not easy to come by, right? It's not on any major streaming services. Um, I will say that it is, as of you know this recording, March first, um, it is free on ABC.com. You can just go watch it there or on the ABC app if you have such a thing. Um, you are the sort there's some ad supported stuff, but you can watch the whole series. What was that? I just said if you are the sort to enjoy apps. Yes, if you have all of the, the major network television apps on your phone, you can get a hold of this. <laughs> but this is a show that I think if it did go to something like Netflix, I think it would find an audience. I really do. Um, it's interesting enough and well and slick enough 
because it is slickly produced um, for what it is. Uh, I think it would find a group of people, um, maybe not enough to get a, a revival or something, you know, a Cobra Kai style <laughs> surge of popularity. But um, I, I think people might might find it interesting. Um, so that's the setup, though, right? So they go down to the Amazon to find this missing guy. Stuff goes crazy. Um, so if you're a found footage fan and you enjoy uh, or think you might enjoy that premise, then I would advise stopping the podcast now, heading over to your local ABC affiliate or what have you, and streaming this and checking it out. Again, it's only eight episodes, uh, so not a huge time investment uh, to get through the whole thing, and it is relatively satisfying. We do end on a bit of a cliffhanger, but it is not um, so cliffhangery as to be you know, left wanting. Uh, these eight episodes do you know, form a sort of complete arc in terms of story, which uh, is nice. Um, and I think helps me anyway sort of enjoy re-watching and re-engaging with it. Um, but now we're going to go into a, a sort of episode-by-episode breakdown, just going to talk about the story, uh, how things progress and develop in the search for Dr. Emmett Cole on the mysterious waters of the Boyuna, and and how the, the series you know sort of develops into uh, what I think is a, a pretty great example of found footage potential. Um, so I guess we, we will begin uh, with the first episode of The River, uh, which is, is aptly titled The Magus. Um, so as we were talking about, we, we open with sort of the memorial to Dr. Emmett Cole. He has been lost in the Amazon for six months at this point. Uh, no communication, nothing from any of his, um, uh, you know, people that went down with him, any of the uh, material they took, none of their satellite phones, none of their GPSs, all of it's gone dark, nobody can find them, uh, and he is presumed dead. So they hold a memorial for him, and on the night of that memorial, his son Lincoln, Hugh, spoke and is uh, approached by his mother and this television producer, to go down into the Amazon to attempt to find him after his, his, I guess, GPS rescue beacon goes off, right? The emergency beacon that he was supposed to fire off if he got into trouble. Uh, it has finally gone off, and they have a rough location of where that will be. Um, so what did you think of the, the first episode? You mentioned earlier that you thought that the first episode was, was pretty compelling, um, but uh, what did you think? I I like the, you know, the immediate drama. I like that it just sort of throws you into this, you know, memorial service. And it, it seems, the first thing that kind of hit me was that I didn't expect um, Tess, the, the wife, to be on board to look for him. I don't know. I guess that was, that was surprising. Usually you, you think of like the grief-stricken wife. And, and that trope, and you don't think that they would be like this true believer, like he's not dead, he's not dead. So I like that that's, that's immediately where the show went, was, you know, kind of a change from, you know, that, that almost very typical archetype of the, the grief-stricken wife. Um, I like that it wasted no time, too. Um, it didn't wallow in the setup it didn't spend a tremendous amount of time following Lincoln around and then you know letting us see absolutely everything about his life um kind of leading up to it and it leaves something about the characters to sort of unfold over the course of the season 
So I liked that. But uh, I also liked that it incorporated so much of the, the flashback footage from the television show. Um, and it feels like they do lean away from that in the later episodes. And then they come back to it whenever something, you know, majorly Emmett Cole happens. Um, but I, I absolutely love anything that they do, you know, with, with, uh, um, with Bruce Greenwood, you know, being this Steve Irwin type character. Because that's, that's immediately what I think of. Because, of course, you know, I'm the right age for that. So, um, but yeah, yeah, it definitely appeals to, you know, anybody, you know, in our case, who grew up in the 80s and 90s and was watching a lot of, um, you know, I, I thought a lot of like Marty Stauffer, you know, kind of stuff, you know, and and it, it really is a, a sort of compelling setup for this character. Um, I read some reviews that said that they felt that Emmett Cole, the show was spent, was too fast to deconstruct him, right? We get introduced to him as this very, you know, uplifting and, and uh, upbeat sort of guy, but then we, we very quickly sort of turn to understand that, you know, he's also obsessed and kind of driven and focused on his work more than his family. You know, a lot of the stuff that we understand and, and sort of get from Lincoln's perspective, right? Like, you know, his his feeling about his dad. So he gets kind of immediately deconstructed. We don't get to sort of look at him in this rose gold way for very long, which I don't necessarily think is a bad thing. I think it's it's kind of smart to immediately just sort of rip that Band-Aid off and say, you know, okay, people who didn't know him at Cole would think that he was this amazing uh, father and this incredible, you know, family man. And he and, kind and of he was. He was. I mean, that's. But, you know, it wasn't all perfect. That's what I and... took away from it. Was I don't know where they. I guess where they say they deconstruct him. I don't really feel like it was deconstructed so much as it was just realistic. <laughs> I mean, he was a good father. I don't think anywhere in the show do I ever really understand all of Lincoln's frustration with his father. Like, I get parts of it, but maybe the rage parts I don't get, because they really do seem to have kind of a loving relationship. And that's definitely where the show goes with it, for sure. At this stage, yeah, I mean, the reason for Lincoln to be, you know, sort of so separated and estranged from his dad is, is not immediately clear. Yeah. And I don't know if it's ever fully explained. I don't think it why. is. Yeah, it's, it seems more just like this they went with this standard idea that kid raised in the limelight that didn't really ever want it, just sort of hating his dad for, for sort of putting him in that situation outside of his control. And so he's running as far away from that as possible. Um, but it, it becomes very apparent as the series continues that that relationship is much stronger than we're initially, you know, kind of led to. And, and of course, you know, we're, we're sort of working towards potentially, you know, patching that relationship over the course of the series. So, you know, I, I think there could have been more time spent there, but again, the, the sort of tropes of a found footage experience that we can really only see the things that were being, sh you know, filmed live or shown. And then the show, as you said, does do a great job of providing this, this sort of background context. Occasionally we'll flip back to old footage of 
Lincoln as a kid or Alina as a kid sort of you know hanging out on the Magus back during the sort of heyday of uh, the show and, and get some context for you know, these various relationships back then. Um, so I guess let's kind of just move through the first episode fairly completely just so we can kind of establish and then we'll kind of just go from that to that after that and talk about what we want. But so the thrust of the, the plot of the first episode is they, they've headed down to the Amazon, they rent a boat and this, you know, crew of, of people thrown together by circumstance are uh, searching for, you know, Dr. Cole. And what they end up finding is uh, his ship, the Magus, right? Which was the ship that they all traveled on. Uh, for years when they were filming the show. Again, it's very little Jacques Cousteau-y, right? It's got like the family boat kind of thing. And they find it, you know, run aground and disabled, you know, as they enter into the Boyuna. And they decide, uh, I guess, they lose their their small boats. Almost mean they get trashed, like somebody slashes them and they can't get off the Magus, so they're trapped. So they repair the Magus. And get it going, and, they, and then that becomes the primary, you know, sort of vehicle of the ship. When they find the Magus, they find tapes, um, you know, the footage that had been assembled from the expedition up into a certain point. And so this is another thing that I love in found footage that we see in things like the VHS series, mm-hmm. where our main characters are watching and and interpreting you know, footage that they themselves have found. So one of the things I think I really like about this is that there is a sort of dual layer found footage narrative going on. There's both the found footage that we are watching that is quote unquote happening live as, as we're seeing it, that has been cut into some kind of show. And then those characters also using the found footage from Dr. Cole's expedition to figure out where he went and what he was doing. And then ultimately, you know, what happened to them. Which it paints an incomplete picture. The footage is not, um, you know, is, is not complete by any stretch, and, and seems to sort of die when the boat died, right? So when they when they left the boat, they don't have any more footage. Um, but I, I really love that, and and they again, this is set up in the world very well. That the Magus being a production vessel, right? This is where they're making the show, while they're filming the footage has an editing bay. It has, you know, uh, cameras posted all around the ship so that they can film what's going on with the family in these various places. So they've got cameras everywhere, which justifies, again, you know, why do we have all these camera angles in these various rooms? Um, it's, it's very clever. Like, like I said, in terms of the found footage setups, I don't know if I've seen one that's more complete. It's way this. better than Paranormal Activity. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I mean, paranormal activity works for that scale, right? Say I've got a dude and I've got a, ca- <clears throat> and I've got a camera. You know, what's he gonna film? Um, but yeah, this one I, I think it's just it's it's one of the best found footage setups that I I, I can imagine, right? I, I really can't think of one that would be more complete, and and have more ways to cover the gaps where you would say, ah, how did they get that shot? Again, this show still has that has a bunch of that but they they set up their gopros everywhere right and there's uh the entire ship is wired with this you know cctv camera system that they're constantly recording you know that kind of stuff works for me and it 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 is just suspension of disbelief right i mean that's all it's doing it's just trying to suspend your disbelief that we could get all this footage 
And I think this show does a great job of doing that. It, it works, as far as I'm concerned, at least. So the, the first episode is really about them getting onto the Magus, and there is something on the Magus. Um, and so this is really where the show gets horrific for the first time, or at least tries to. Um, so the ship had a panic room, which I thought was a clever idea. Uh, and that got mentioned in the Pele article as well, that somebody had, had thrown that out in the writer's room. Hey, what if there's a panic room on the ship? And what if there was something inside, um, you know, banging, waiting to get out? And so that's exactly what they find. Uh, there is a, a, initially they think it's, it, they hope that it's Emmett inside the panic room. Um, they, they pry it open, they have to weld it open, uh, or cut through welds to get it open, I should say. And inside they find, don't find a human, but instead they find this sort of container and they knock it over and then something escapes um, and draws blood, which gives it some power. Um, eventually we find out that it's, it's one of the previous expedition members whose spirit has somehow been tied to this object and has now been released and is very, very angry. I guess it's that spirit that slashes the boat, uh, the boat so they can't escape and then winds up killing one of the two cameramen. Uh, I guess our, our main cameraman, we have AJ, who kind of goes through the whole series, and then another cameraman named Sammy. Uh, and Sammy is killed, and there's a great shot of him just being dragged off good. the ship. And he's still got the camera, and he's just, like, whipped into the air, and it's it's very, very cool. Um, you know, one of those shots that you look at and go, like, did they just attach a camera to a crane and just fling it <laughs> just high speed ratchet it away and and you know hope for the best um it's just some cool shots there's some some interesting shots in that first episode but it, it very well establishes the tone right and that something is wrong here which i think is is really cool um it's it's a little bit spooky i'm not gonna say it's straight horror but it's definitely a little bit on the the, the spooky side or at least tries to be so how did this this first episode, as far as its introductory arc, I mean, how did you feel like it worked for you? Um, I think it was really great. I, you know, it, it was a lot of introductions of characters and, and learning who people were. Um, it still, it took me some time to kind of figure out where, what everybody was supposed to be doing. And of course... You know, like you've said about uh, Rendelson, you know, we don't really know everything about him even by the time the show ends. So, you know, I understood that sort of the characters I'm meeting, I'm not immediately going to know exactly what's going on with them. Um, but I I really enjoyed, I, I enjoyed that it was a bit more chaotic than some of the other episodes like this was very intense so they do dial back the intensity in some of the later episodes just a bit but not not to any detriment like I think I think it's impossible for them to maintain the kind of uh excitement that this episode has yeah there's a there's a level of intensity that this pilot has the pilot feels a little bit self-contained as well. I mean, they're obviously setting up the series, but, um, you know, there there is certainly a, we wrote this as a sort of, you know, complete package so that people would kind of know, probably the studio would know, this is kind of what we have planned. And 
you know, once the, the spirit is released, it does become very intense. Um, you know, they're trying to repair the Magus so that they can escape. Um, Lena Landry shows up seemingly out of nowhere. Uh, so again, she's the daughter of, of Emmett Cole's sort of main camera guy throughout most of his career. And she's grown now uh, sort of off on her own. And she shows back up. And, and we do find out that she's, you know, got some ties to things that have been going on. She had stayed in contact with them at much longer than the rest of his family had. And so she is actually aware of a secret stash of tapes that Emmett didn't necessarily want getting out. Um, things that, that had happened and things that he had seen. And we get a nice little smattering of those here as the show attempts to establish the, the sort of supernatural elements and just what Emmett Cole was was up to down here, which was not just his standard, you know, hey, let's let's find an interestingly colored salamander, right? Like, <laughs> um, he's he's down here to discover, quite literally, magic to find the source of some kind of mystical force. And uh, and really, what we get in that first episode is a little smattering of. of where we are going to wind up without any context, without knowing, you know, what we're seeing, really. Um, but, like, some of the facilities and stuff that uh, we wind up in in the last few episodes, we see Emmett, you know, sort of in and, and dealing with um, by himself. But, you know, the show does a lot of, uh, you know, single, you know, handheld camera, you know, single character holding a camera to their face, you know, talking a lot of free screen with, a lot of Bruce Greenwood's role in this show is that, um, but, but pretty effective. But I, I really like this first episode. I think it, again, is a great way to establish a found footage series and what the style of that looks like and how they're going to execute that efficiently. Because, you know, I think this could be, and maybe it was, maybe it was a nightmare to film the show this way. I, I can see having this artifice on top of just trying to tell a story being a problem in some cases. But I, I think it's kind of beautifully done to establish this this basic rhythm of storytelling in this milieu. Um, you know, the flat camera angles, you know, the, the sort of artificial camera moves as it's zooming in and out on people's faces. And um, it's, it's good. It's just really solid. I agree. But in essence, they get the Magus working again. Finally, that becomes their primary ship. And now, you know, we have to, to sort of continue moving forward. Um, I, uh, yeah, I was just rewatching the shot of, of Sammy getting pulled off the boat. And it's just, it's so interesting. Um, you know, it's literally just a body flying through the air with a GoPro attached to it. It's, it's, it all, it feels very lo-fi. I'm sure there was a tremendous amount of technology attached to it as, as there is with much of the show, but it, it feels appropriately, you know, sort of lo-fi, you know, put together by, by relative amateurs, even if, you know, they're meant to be like a real TV production crew, but so the, the show ends, or at least this first episode ends, with the spirit of this former crewmate, uh, Tess asks it, as it is sort of raging against them, to, uh, to indicate whether or not Dr. Cole is still alive. Uh, and, at least according to Tess, she got a response, right? It, it screamed twice or something. 
<laughs> which indicated, twice. you know, which uh, indicated that Emmett was indeed still out there. Because that's the main question: is 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 he even is he even still alive? Is this even worth it? And that becomes sort of like one of the major questions in the show. If we're risking our lives, we're putting ourselves in this danger. Is it even worth it? You know, should we just admit he's dead and move on? And then the last couple, you know, we do get a tease about Brynaldson and and most specifically this idea of the source. Um, that if, if Emmett Cole had found the source or if he's involved in the source or has done anything with the source in any way, that Brynaldson is there to, to kill him, to put him down, as he says. Um, so there's a little bit of intrigue there. We get a little bit of mystery. And, you know, the show is, is off to the races at that point. Now, if it's indicated to us that quietly the uh, the TV producer sees Brynaldson say this, um, and then doesn't really communicate that to anybody, so I'm a little bit you know dicey on on that. Um, it's established pretty quickly that quietly and Cole didn't really get along. You know, they didn't like each other. Uh, they worked together because that's you know just kind of what they needed to do, but they didn't um, you know didn't care for each other in. in in any way, and that becomes a sort of major point later in the, the series as well. But our last shot is, uh, it, it's artificial, it's a CG shot, but it's a drone shot, supposedly, you know, sort of shooting up into the sky and showing just the, the absolute maze of waterways and, and stuff that represents the Boyuna. Like, like this is, is the Bermuda Triangle of the Amazon, and, and you are lost forever. Um, so it, it again, it feels very encapsulated, right? It feels like it's telling a complete story, setting things up, but not necessarily, you know, it doesn't feel much like just the TV show proper just yet. It feels very much almost standalone. And uh, I, I think you can kind of feel that. But that takes us to the second episode, which uh, is now the television show proper, and it is called Marbly. Um, which we come to find out is the name of Lincoln's childhood teddy bear that he carried with him on the Magus when he was a kid. So Marbley is where um, it's almost a maker. I, I think this, if you enjoyed the first episode but weren't like completely bought in, how well you buy this episode will determine if you'll finish the series or not, I think. Um, because it does slow down a little bit, right? The, the the scares are still there, but it's it's much more paced out. And this is where we also get some of the more sort of like really super obvious supernatural stuff. Because in that footage of Emmett Cole in the first episode, we see him like walking on water, conjuring fire in his hands, <laughs> right? Like It was kind of wild. Pretty, pretty spaced out kind of stuff, you know? But uh, this is one of the Michael Green episodes, and in essence, they they encounter a a drowned spirit. Right, a lot of the a lot of the things that happen in the show are are sort of rooted in in various mythological and and you know sort of um, you know almost I don't want to use creepy pasta style legends. Right from the region and, and from various. It's not places. too far so, off. You know, in this case, they find uh, a a field of trees with children's dolls. It's really well done. In it. 
yeah i i really i remember watching this the first time and and just that field of doll heads is like wow that's it's a really compelling image it's one of those things that'll just stick in your head you know whether you it it freaks you out or not i don't know but you're not going to forget it anytime soon um but they find a, a drowned girl who was abandoned and and basically she wants a, a mother back right she wants a family and so she ends up kidnapping this this spirit in the water ends up kidnapping tess so that she can have a mother again and so it, it really almost becomes like the ring where we have to like get the body like back to her we have to like give her her mother back so they have to like dig up this body and and deal with this angry spirit and it's i don't know what did what did you think of episode two i guess we'll just kind of throw that out there i loved it it was silly um i was kind of afraid uh that the show might be very very serious uh because the first episode is pretty serious it's pretty serious um but then this one gave me hope that there is there is silliness afoot um it was very much like episodes of the x-files that had a good time that's what it reminded me yes. of I mean, in terms of scares, it's definitely the field of doll heads. Yeah, um, just creepy they... stuff. <laughs> <laughs> um, they there is also a component um, that they establish pretty early on that there are these like dragonflies around, and um, uh, I guess it's Jahel, the the young girl. This is where she sort of her role in the series really takes off. And she is apparently possessed by the spirit of Dr. Cole for a short period of time inside of one of these dragonflies. And and he attempts to tell his family to, to go home, to not stay, right? Get out of here. You don't you don't want to be here. Um, they're not going to listen, of course. It's, you know, we wouldn't have a show otherwise. But the, you know, they get the, the Magus going again. Everybody's, you know, pretty happy about that. Um, they're continuing to look at all of uh, Emmett's tapes, right? That's really the, the main thrust of this phase is they're going through all the footage and trying to figure out exactly what he's gotten up to. And so they see him, you know, sort of traveling through the jungle. He's meeting these various groups, uh, you know, some of them nefarious, you know, sort of militia types. And they're, they're just desperately trying to get their bearings, right? Which is why these first few episodes may not be tremendously satisfying. It's because they don't really know what to do, right? They've come to this place. They're hunting for his beacon. They find it, and, you know, he's not there. It was in a, an underwater cage that something broke out of. Um, but it definitely was not, was not him. Uh, so now, where do we go? We found the beacon. It's not, he's not there, so what do we do? And so they get... You know, they start searching through the tapes. You know, Cole shows up as the dragonfly and tries to tell Tess to leave. That's kind of like the opening gambit of the episode. And then they decide to venture inland to try and find, um, you know, some of the locations that they see on some of his tapes. And that's what gets them encountered with the spirit. Um, they find an ancient grave of Sir Henry Nevins, <laughs> uh, you know, sort of uh, additional explorer. So other people have been there and died kind of thing. So as you said, things get a little bit more, 
a little bit more TV showy, right? Um, but I, I kind of like it. It was it was and refreshing. It's good. Yeah. But I want to talk about one scene because I I think it defines this episode for sure, but it may define the whole series because it's so freaking good. And I, I remember again, I remember watching this episode and it's when they find the little girl in the clearing, right? So they're walking through this jungle and they hear these sounds and they see what looks like a little girl sitting on the ground and they, they approach her, they're talking to her and they get up on it and it is straight up, a long that was great. capuchin monkey <laughs> wearing a doll mask and it looks like a little girl and it turns <laughs> and then it's a freaking monkey and it's first I was I mean, scared but then I laughed <laughs> uh, yeah like it's it's so off-putting uh, and it looks so freaky um, just it was just, I remember watching it the first time and being like, wow, what a perfectly executed series of events. If you just want to freak the hell out of a bunch of people, just have a little girl turn around and look at them. And it still kind of looks human right up until the point the monkey reveals itself and screams at them. Um, but then, of course, they see the, the field of, of doll heads, you know, hundreds of dolls, some production designer had to have gone to eBay and just bought every single doll that they had available and then just stapled it to all these trees. It's it's really cool. Um when they said, Oh, we'll just camp here for the night, I was like, oh no, Why? no one would do this. <laughs> no one in their right minds would camp in this particular spot. Um but it does open up the possibility of a whole bunch of really cool things as they set up the cameras for the night or whatever. And, you know, people are just kind of milling around and doing their thing. And, like, all the doll heads are turning and all the eyes are blinking when they're not looking and all this stuff. Just, it's great, right? This is, this feels very sort of a little bit cheesy, you know, like some of the paranormal activity stuff. Um, but I don't know. I, I think it was, I, I thought it was really good. But, of course, the the centerpiece of the episode is that, this this bear that Lincoln uh, he tells us what he threw it overboard or yeah. he he lost it years ago and this bear is straight up just you know in one of these trees and of course the the in-world explanation they have for it is that Emmett had it with him and then sort of left it in this case and here's where we do get one of those little flashback sequences where it says hey we're back on the Magus in like January of 1989 and we're introduced to to a uh, necklace that Emmett Cole had given Lincoln when he was a kid that he said some shaman had given him and that he would you know, give it to a, a strong kid when he met him. Um, and so this symbol becomes important a little bit later. Right now, it just seems like a nice moment between father and son. But uh, of course, there is a, a larger you know, sort of arc. Implication. But I really love that stuff. Of the, uh, you know, the flashbacks to stuff on the, the Magus when still a, a kind of together family it's kind of cool so we get a lot of you know backstory here between lincoln and lena and you know sort of the the nature of their relationship to emmett uh lena of course is there to try and find her father um, 
who uh, Russ Landry, I guess, who was with him when he disappeared. And, uh, you know, is, is hoping to be able to recover him in the same way that uh, they're hoping to recover Emmett, because ideally they're still together. Um, we do get some of the patented paranormal activity time speeding here, which the show does not do a ton of. And I'm um, glad of that. Yeah, it's it's not a bad technique. It's certainly not one that I, I hate or anything like that. But I've seen it a lot. But, right, it's it's something that, that could have been overused, and, and I'm glad that it wasn't. Um, but it is it is good for this, since they are, you know, just sort of in this weird space, and, and they're just letting the cameras run overnight while they sleep. Uh, Lincoln gets tugged out of his sleeping bag by some force, and... Uh, you know, we kind of get to see that in the, the, the time lapse, which is a little bit cool. Um, but yeah, ultimately what we get here is the establishment of the, the necklace and the symbol. Uh, and then Tess is, is kidnapped by this spirit. Um, Jahel is, is still recovering from, you know, eating that bug spirit. Yeah, from, from eating a dragonfly, which I can't imagine would be a great experience. If I flew into your throat um, like that, that'd be terrible. It would be horrible. I mean, literally dragonflies in your stomach yeah. uh, instead of butterflies. But it's the first time we get a mention of uh, her mother and, you know, the dad saying, I can't lose you like I lost your mother. Um, so there's, there's some kind of family connection here. Um I guess it's not a spoiler to reveal that Jahel is, is some kind of, of psychic slash spirit medium, something along those lines. And she has a sort of link to this world that they are, are now all trapped in. So uh, is there anything else you want to talk about with episode two? I mean, obviously they get Tess back at the end. Uh, they give the, the water spirits, you know, this young girl who was abandoned, they give her her mother back, they, they dig her up out of the grave, and uh, she releases Tess once she has her own mother back. Yeah, I mean, it's and, a very uh, straightforward story. It's not surprising. It doesn't have any twists or turns, really, but it was fun. It was fun. Yeah. It's a fun little capsule episode that sets up some things for later, because Lincoln finds that necklace. He had stashed it on the boat. And he puts it back on, which becomes important later. Um, and, of course, we get the, the establishment of the dragonfly and uh, the sort of further deepening of the relationship between Lincoln and Lena, um, complete with flashbacks of you know, them as kids again and, and sort of paralleling them with their relationship now. Um, yeah, so the, the second episode comes to an end, and... You know, I, I think at this point, the tone of the series is pretty fully established. Uh, and as I said, if you're not on board after the second episode with what the show's trying to do, I, I don't know if it's going to work for you, which is fine. Um, but it's it, it certainly worked for me. Like, I remember watching that episode and be like, yeah, yeah, this is good. This is really good. <laughs> um, so the third episode is another bit of a capsule episode. This is one of the Glenn Morgan episodes. Um and it's, it's not unlike the structure of the first, or the second, I guess. Uh, we do get some more of, you know, Emmett back in the day. He's exploring the Great Barrier Reef, I guess. We get to see him, Clark, and Tess together. Um, 
you know, as the show was being filmed. And then we're pretty quickly set up that they're going to head inland again. You know, it's another one of those, hey, we've got a little, you know, Emmett might have gone this way. He was trying to make contact with these people. Uh, so we're going to head inland and try and find them and see if they've got any you know, idea of the whereabouts. And they're very quickly introduced to a cave system, right? The, so the third um, episode is called Los Ciegos. And they go in this cave system and they find a bunch of really sort of horrifically mangled and mutilated bodies, um, which are, what did they say they were? They're some kind of like peace workers. Um, yeah, that they were. Something along yeah. those lines. Um, one of them has, still has his passport on him or something. And, and, and they find out that they're, you know, it's, it's not Emmett basically. Like they think maybe it's Emmett and his crew, but it's, it's not. They always think it's Emmett. Um, yeah. Every, all the dead bodies are Emmett, right? It's, they're all, all around the corner. Um, but so this episode is, I think it's, it's not necessarily one of the strongest. I think it is kind of cool. Um, what they try to do with it, but, um, Basically, when they get down in this cave, there's a bunch of bats, and they all get infected. Um, well, they get forced out of the cave by the bats, and then they uh, again spend the night in the jungle when they shouldn't. <laughs> Don't spend That's the night a in the theme. jungle. Um, and uh, they are are kind of, I guess, poisoned, right? Like something's dri- dripped into their eyes overnight, and it starts making. Yeah, it's them like an alive. infection. But a uh, magical this, infection. <laughs> that's right. Because they establish that there are these various, you know, again, I, I think this shows handling of indigenous populations and, you know, it's groups very in the Amazon is, is pretty bad. Um, you know, it's, it's very... It's to say it's, it's, not, it's not a great way to, uh, to, to deal with these things yeah. and it doesn't seem extremely respectful or, or interested in being respectful of uh, you know these these native groups and the things that matter to them about their lands and uh, you know their their traditions it's it's very Americanized and very ooh spooky you know like that kind of thing um, and so that is a, a definite failing of the show but it's a show that was made nine years ago at this point when you know our we were just not as keyed in. Not that we know any things. better now, but maybe yeah. some of us do. Yeah, it's it's just too easy to have these mysterious forces out there that are, are doing these strange and mystical things and just kind of hang it on the, oh, the native tribes, right? And be like, eh. And it's the, you know, playing off of that fear of the unknown and doing it in the most racist way possible. Right. And and so it's it's certainly a weakness. Uh, Jahel here has all the answers again. Somehow she knows what these things are. She knows what, what is going on. She has a copy of the script. Yes, she had the script when nobody else did. Uh, but her father is the first to be sort of infected and have his eyesight, you know, sort of go away kind of thing. Um, it's a good episode. Uh, it ultimately culminates with these, this tribe, you know, sort of, getting onto the boat. There's a lot of really good shots towards the end of the episode of um, these, you know, sort of ghost white painted people, um, you know, standing in the the backs of hallways and they're wearing these creepy masks that kind of don't have eyes. I mean, it's, it's very visually arresting. And in terms of, 
of found footage stuff. It's it's pretty cool. Uh, Clark gets stabbed quietly. The producer um, gets gets injured pretty severely. Um, which uh, you know was was kind of good. He he's probably the least the most underwritten character. I guess let's take a break and just talk about the characters in the show for a sec, because I think one of the great things about found footage in this much longer format is that theoretically we get a lot more time with the characters to develop them. And I I don't want to say that the show's characters are completely underdeveloped. Everybody certainly has a thing, you know, some element of their backstory, some component of who they are, that they are, um, you know, that, that gets exposed and sort of laid out over the course of the series. But we don't get, we don't get a chance to go deep. Yeah. Right. And, and there's not much time expended in this show on pure character development. Um, and unfortunately, as the show goes on, it becomes so, I want to say obsessed, but kind of obsessed with its plot elements that that becomes the significant focus. And we are no longer, you know, there's really very little time taken for character. You get little flashbacks here and there. But it's the one weakness that I feel that this show had. It had the opportunity to perhaps be one of the first found footage things to really delve into characters through that. And they kind of just don't. Um, And again, I don't want to make it sound like there isn't. But given the amount of time that this show has, seven hours of of found footage stuff. They don't really do much with character. There's, there's a little bit, but not as much as there could have been. And that's, that's a a real disappointment for me because I think that's the biggest attraction is the opportunity to see people develop characters in a found footage context really effectively. And it just kind of doesn't get there. What do you think? Um, this episode was my least favorite. Um, yeah, I don't think it does much. I, I, I remember thinking like, wow, this was a change. I hope that the, the, the show doesn't stay like this. Um, cause you know, there's always that risk. You watch one good episode and then one stinker and it's like, well, you have 50, 50 shot of what the next one's going to be like. <laughs> um, but yeah, this one was, was probably the, the weakest for me. Just I don't know, the the whole conceit of them going blind, I just didn't really care. (laughs) Yeah, you can tell somebody seized on the idea because they're already in this sort of foreign space. They're in a jungle. You know, what if they what if they went blind? How would they deal with that? Um, And again, I think it makes sense that this is the Glenn Morgan episode because it feels like a kind of discarded X-Files idea. Yeah. Okay, what if Mulder and Scully are in a remote location and they go blind? How will they navigate? You know, like that kind of thing. Um, and it kind of works here. It certainly does create some tension, um, it, at least marginally. I think it was just too early in the series for this episode. Yeah, maybe. I feel like this just was not an important enough thing to be happening in, in the, the quest for Emmett Cole. That I, I feel like this could have been placed somewhere else or, or rewritten to be later in the season. Um, it just, it, it was a rough third episode. Yes. Yeah. Um, 
it does it does establish some of the the recurring tensions of the show uh tension between Clark and Lincoln tension between you know Bernaldson and most of the crew really cuz he <laughs> Kurt versus you know, everyone <laughs> yeah he he continues to just be very aloof um and and sort of you know impenetrable in terms of of what's going on um, like I said, I think it's an okay episode. It's it's fine for establishing some more context of what's going on. Um, but yeah, it, it just feels like after the previous episode, it, it doesn't feel connected to anything in particular, right? It feels like a sort of left out there idea that wasn't really fully developed. But then we kick things off in episode four, and I think from here on out, the series just kind of hits a dead sprint and doesn't really stop. Yeah. Somewhat to its detriment because we lose that character development, but things really take off. Um, so episode four is simply called The Better Man, and it deals with Los Colgados, or El Colgado, uh, the hanging man. And I, I don't know. I, I thought this was, was pretty strong in terms of its setup we get a little bit more footage uh, they discover of Emmett uh, attempting to dislodge the Magus from where they found it, basically. Uh, and we're introduced to, finally, some of the members of the rest of this expedition that was out there with Emmett. Uh, so we know that Russ Landry, Lena Landry's dad, was with him, but he also had an additional couple of people who were with him as camera operators. Uh, we're introduced to Jonas Beckett, who was the, the sort of second camera operator on the trip. And it, it's uh, raining, it's dark, and Emmett is trying to dislodge all these vines from the Magus so that they can escape and keep moving. And the moment he cuts them free, they all grow back, and they can't, can't get out, right? And so this is the position we found the Magus in, and we saw um, Lincoln remove those same vines from the ship in, like, the first episode. Um, so we're kind of touching back on that, which is cool. And then we, we do get a little bit of just kind of the river life that they're on. Uh, we established that it's about day 16 into the journey. They're getting resupplied by a local farmer, looks like. Um, and they uh, sort of continue on the journey, so to speak. And as they're going, they find a guy hanging in the middle of the jungle. Yeah. Um, seemingly as if from nowhere. And of course, it's it's Jonas Beckett. Uh, because again, their their issue, their problem is that they don't know where to go, right? That That's really been the issue of the last couple of episodes is we don't know where Emmett is. The footage that we're, we're looking through isn't giving us any clear indications. So they find this guy hanging. He looks dead. But as they pass, he startles and awakens and they cut him down uh and it's this this cameraman jonas um so i'll be honest i really liked this episode i thought it was exceptionally well done this one was really good yeah um so they free him they bring him into the ship he's has no real memory of of what he's been through uh he doesn't even know how long that he was hanging there in the jungle uh even though you know Probably should have been dead. We do get to see Lincoln, you know, sort of flexing his doctor muscles a little bit, which does become more important as the, the series goes through. 
Um, but I, what I really liked is that it's all interspersed with, you know, Jonas's footage, right? Like the things that he, you know, was filming to get the job and, you know, some job interviews. We're, we're told that he and Lena kind of had a, a little bit of a relationship that she was helping select the crew that Emmett was going to take with him on this expedition for the undiscovered country and that she was part of that process. So we see some of that interview footage. Um, I don't know. It just, it feels like this is the episode where the show finally gets a more solidified identity where they find out where they sort of make decisions about here's how we're going to tell these stories. We've got our found footage here. We've got our documentary style, you know, first person interviews and that stuff just starts sort of congealing a little bit more for me. Um, because these are all very acceptable found footage sort of tropes of storytelling. And, and I think it just kind of all comes together here. Um, to be honest, I think the show decided we're going to be a little bit more Blair Witch and a little bit less paranormal activity mm-hmm. for the better. Right? Yeah. Like absolutely for the better. Like it was, because it was just clear that, that the show sort of found the balance Finally, I don't know what it what it is exactly that happens in the midpoint of a season, but it seems like they find that balance between like this is the amount of action we want to have, this is the amount of exposition we want to have. Yeah, and and they finally sort of they sort of hit that stride here um, as they nurse Jonas back to health. You know, he doesn't have a ton of answers for where he's been or what he's been doing, um, but he's you know their best lead basically. So the question is though, of course, you know, what's going on and why is he out there? So we start getting some footage that Jonas had filmed or, you know, I guess, uh, quietly uncovers it where, where Jonas is told by Emmett not to film certain things, you know, that the native individuals, the native people, you know, there are some rituals, some things that, should not be filmed and that they would take offense to if they did, which Jonas doesn't really understand being this kind of like, I don't know. I, I almost want to call him like an extreme skater. Guy, right? <laughs> He's like the guy who would be filming skate videos for his friends in high school. Like that's, that's really what he is. You know, sort of your, your long beach, California, you know, skater slash surfer dude. And so Emmett tells him to stop filming the footage and, and, uh, you know, they get to a little conflict there. We get a couple of really great scenes, though. Basically, in, in cutting him down, they have disturbed the Boyuna, right? Again. Has... <laughs> what? Again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, and that's kind of what it is. It's like, okay, well, how did we do something that then, you know, messed with the Boyuna? Um, in this case, cutting him down has, has angered it. And so we get a really awesome scene where birds just fall out of the sky by the hundreds all over the ship, which is pretty cool. It's a good effect. Um, but in essence, what we find out is that Jonas decided that he was going to film, even though Emmett told him not to. So he took his iPhone uh, out into the jungle to, what does he say? I'm going to get my Peabody. Something like that. <laughs> you know, he's like, I'm going to get my Peabody. And he goes out and he films and he basically captures the soul of uh, a dying man as he's he's laid in being laid to rest in the jungle and he angers the spirit of the boyuna and so as a result the boyuna wants him to hang for eternity 
And there is a really cool scene where Jahel breaks out her tarot cards, because of course she would have a set of tarot cards, why wouldn't she? Um, and every time Lincoln draws the tarot card, it's always the hanging man, just every single time, every single time, which is, is a cool scene. Spooky. I mean, it's, it's good. Increased tension, nicely handled. Too spooky effect. Yes, it's very spooky. So spooky. Um, but they, you know, eventually realized that Jonas had had made this grievous error and I don't know if I especially buy Jonas's like sudden change of heart. Like the, he basically realizes, Hey, um, cause as they're, they're going through like a, a vine comes down over the ship in the shape of a noose. <laughs> it's like, okay, you need to get back in this noose, dude. Like, you know, I'm not going to let you go. Um, and he goes in and he, he jumps into it and his phone ends up breaking. And when his phone breaks, it releases the spirit of the, the, that had been trapped and and he's released from his his curse right he his his mistake has been undone because the footage has been destroyed and the soul's been released and i often feel that way about my own phone just take it break it and then i will be free from this curse <laughs> exactly but the show very cleverly in in doing this actually got a second cameraman back which was also yeah. nice because now they can have another camera guy um that dead guy sucks let's get a new one that's right that that guy sucked we got another cameraman um which uh you know they they do deal with the awkwardness of it of him like you know not wanting to agree to do it but yet here we are but the main i guess the main thing that gets introduced in this episode and that lincoln has to wrestle with for a while is the fact that his dad left jonas behind to hang presumably forever and suffer and he was okay with it seemingly and so there he's re-watching that footage and trying to understand how his dad could do something so cruel when you know it didn't seem like that was something that he was capable of and then of course they stumble on some footage of him you know basically admitting how it was a mistake and that he was going to have to live with that choice and it's it's good i mean I, uh, bruce greenwood is amazing in the series yeah like He's a national For a dude who does not show up in it outside of footage on screens for a long time, he does a tremendous amount of work at establishing Emmett Cole as a, a fairly complicated and intriguing character. Um, but Bruce Greenwood is amazing in this series, and it's almost worth watching just for him. Uh, I, w- I would watch Bruce Greenwood do anything. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, it doesn't matter. I, I just think he's great. I think he's really good at what he does. I watched Star Trek Into Darkness for him. Page. I did, yeah. Like, he's great. Best part of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Easily. Um, but he's so good in this. And, you know, watching him kind of develop this character and, and what he winds up being as the show comes to a conclusion is is just really solid. It's it's very good. Um and so here, you know, we see them that he, he does regret doing what he did, but he felt that it was the only way to, to keep the rest of the crew alive. Uh, so moving right along, we're on episode five. We've only really got a few episodes left. This one is called Peaches, uh, which we find out is Russ Landry's nickname for his daughter, Lena. And, you know, this really is the, the Lena centric episode of the season. Um, it's, it's focused on her and her relationship with her dad, why she's out there, um, 
we do get a couple of key reveals about, you know, how she was still connected to Emmett and, you know, how she was kind of working with him well after his family had kind of left him behind and, and didn't want to be involved anymore. Um, you know, there's a lot of, This episode tries to, there are moments of lightness in this episode, right? Which this, the series keeps trying to have moments of levity broken in, uh, you know, which you can probably tell is, is somebody at the studio saying like, this show's like really depressing. Everyone's um, so sad. Yeah. Everyone is cursed Ooh. all the time. <laughs> yeah, we need some laughs. And, and so they try and it doesn't really land. Um, one of the reviews that I read was, pretty upset that there was no humor in the show at all which i think found footage is not necessarily the genre for humor um i i think it's hard building comedy and humor beats in the best of circumstances is tough and doing it through this restricted lens i, I don't know it, it would be challenging um and, and we really don't see um We really don't get much of it, um, unfortunately. But we do see that Lena and Jonas are kind of, you know, into each other a little bit. It feels like the show might have been attempting down the road to develop a kind of love triangle between Lincoln, Lena, and, and Jonas. Doesn't really happen, but I don't think we know enough about either one either Lena or Jonas to care. They would have to do a lot more building before we could care about something like that. Right, yeah, it definitely feels like something maybe we're going to set up for the future, but we're not going to spend much time on it now. There's, And again, it feels like a show that's making very specific choices about what it wants to spend its time on. Right, it's saying, okay, like, we need to tell these stories and have these beats. We we need to do these things. Um, but this show, this particular episode is mostly about um, they have an encounter on the river with another boat. Um, I'm of the opinion that it's actually just a mirror image of their boat coming at them. I, I, I think that's what, what they run into. Um, but basically, they, they run aground trying to avoid another boat passing on the river. Um, maybe it's the, the exit of the ship. I, I don't know. But uh, they run aground again. They're mechanically unsound again. <laughs> and they start calling for help or rescue and... Uh, a ship eventually comes called the Exodus and four people come aboard. They seem like nice people. They're like uh, you know, green you know, tree huggers, you know, green peace type people who are down there. Uh, according to them, like fighting pirates or something. And they have the parts they need, fortunately, um, and they seem nice enough, but there's definitely something off about them. Um, and the, the basic conceit of this episode is that they're on some kind of phantom ship. And if you stay on the phantom ship past sunrise, you become tied to it uh, like, a, like a ghost. Like a Pirates of the Caribbean ship. movie. <laughs> That's right. Uh, it, you know, There's no Johnny Depp, but it's Pirates of the Caribbean. You become uh, a ghost on the ghost ship, and I, I guess there's some kind of like swap. If you bring a new spirit onto the ship, then you get to leave, right? Like you could just die, I guess, <laughs> um, instead of being tied to it. 
And so that's really what the crew of the Exodus is. They're they're trapped to the boat. If they bring on new members, then they get to leave. So they're trying to sort of pull people in. So there's some really um, obvious camera trickery stuff going on here, where the members of the other crew, when they kind of reveal that they're you know the spirits, there's this weird camera effect that shows them. Uh, it feels a little bit like you know Zach Baggins <laughs> kind of stuff. You know, it feels like they're trying to play on that a little bit. Um, you know, where's my my EMP meter or whatever. <laughs> you know, it's like, it feels very, very supernatural. Again, it's it's riding that line of being a little bit silly. It's kind of goofy, but it's compelling enough within this this setup to kind of work. Yeah. Um, uh, we finally get to see Russ Landry, which really this waiting until episode five to have an actor tied to it really felt like a budgetary restriction. Yeah. Like. You know, because he's mentioned off screen several times and whatever, but this is the first time we see his face, so it really feels like a okay, we're not going to cast this guy until the end. It's so hard to create a, a concrete memory of a character when you you're given their introduction so late. Like I can't, I can't even conjure for you anything about him <laughs> because it just took so long. Well. If if he hadn't have been one of the road one of the crew from Wayne's World, it's it's, it's Lee Turgeson, um, who played uh, oh god which one was he? <sighs> Terry, he's Terry, he's the head cameraman. Um, he's the one who tells his friends, "I love you, man." Yeah, like he's the "I love you, man" guy from Wayne's World. Um, that's how I recognized him. I was like, "Oh my god, it's Terry." <laughs> um, I love you, man. I love you, man. Oh, that movie ruined us all, didn't it? <laughs> it did. It did. Um, but so we're we're introduced to him, and you know the ship is broken again. So the father and the da- uh, daughter are trying to to reassemble it, and we get to see some of their mechanical expertise. Um, you know, but this this episode I thought was was pretty solid. You know, we get some new characters, some fresh faces to sort of spice things up a little bit. Um, a little bit of character conversation here as they're questioning each other about, you know, hey, what are you like? What are you like? And, and so we get a little bit more, you know, depth to these various characters. And we get to see uh, Brindleson, you know, kind of do his thing because he's immediately suspicious of these people and, and doesn't trust them. Um, and so we get a, a little bit about him and, and sort of how he is, is you know, trying to, to keep the mission going kind of thing. Uh, and he gets to have a confrontation with uh, one of them. It's pretty good. Like, he basically shoots one dead, and then it doesn't have an effect. Uh, we also get our first overt Blair Witch reference in this episode. Yeah. Um, because Lena and Jonas decide to go over to their boat, which they say should be empty. They're, they're the only people on it. But they go over to their boat after seeing something move in one of the ports. And then as they're getting ready to go in, Jonah, it's very dark. Jonah says, hey, let me turn on night vision. And then she, Lena, does the whole, like, you know, you know, they're coming for me. You know, I, I love my family. Tell my family I love them, you know. This, the the whole, you know, Blair Witch, snotty nose in the, the tent. Yeah. Um, which, again, self-referential, totally fine. 
know the genre that you're in and what it's doing. Um, yeah, like the whole, the whole I'm so scared speech, I guess. But then she gets interrupted and she actually does hear something, <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was, was yeah, fun. Yeah, nice you know, it's cool. Uh, but the big reveal is, is that her dad is on the ghost boat. Ghost boat. The, the ghost you boat. You just got and ghost they become trapped on the ghost boat. And, and that becomes sort of the thrust of the rest of the episode is, you know, how are we going to get them off before sunrise? But Lena does get her. She does get her, her cathartic moment with her father, right? A, a sort of ending because he can't leave the boat. That's the, the thing that gets revealed at the end. She tries to save him because I can't leave. I'm one of them now. I have to stay here. And, you know, that, that sort of. Her, her closure, or at least all the closure she's going to get for her dad. Which does set up some interesting things, because basically then uh, Lincoln is like, well, let's just get her off the boat. If she, if her dad's not going to, you know, if we can't rescue him, she, there's no reason for her to be here. We should just get her off the boat. And that becomes kind of a point of contention in the next episode. But um, there's a bit of a chase at the end. I did want to talk a bit about the camera work, because again, I, I think the camera work gets better as the show goes on. I think they develop a series of techniques and shorthands one thing i started noticing were uh, camera handoffs which i thought were really cool right so they basically establish with some kind of wide shot here's the other camera guy over here right and then it kind of allows them to break some of the rules of camera movement because then once we see the other camera guy and where his camera is looking then the show feels comfortable cutting to that camera guy at his perspective and, and so they start doing this camera handoff yeah. trick a bunch yeah. starting in this episode where, you know, one guy's down on the boat filming up and we see that camera guy and then we just immediately reverse shot to the that guy's shot so we can see the other angle. And it becomes cleaner as the show goes on. And I think it's a really confident technique because it almost lets you break the 180 rule. Right. And it's it's a really clever thing. So the you know, the 180 rule in filmmaking is basically you never want to confuse your audience by immediately flipping the camera 180 degrees. There's like this you know 180 degree line yeah. that you shouldn't really move the camera around. And so guys like Hitchcock figured out that if you do it slowly, you can you can do it. There's a really good example of this in Rear Window where mm-hmm. the camera sort of starts in one position in the room and then through a series of setups, he's able to move it to the other position so you can see the opposite angle. But with this one, they basically get the same ability to do that just by showing you in one shot, here's where the other camera guy is, and then immediately flipping to that perspective. And it's really good. Um, That's it's, one of those things clean, about found footage that you you don't, recognize as being such a slick technique until you sit back and think about it. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's really clever. It's almost like it's not that the 180 rule can't be broken. It's just that the brain has to have some kind of understanding of why it's being broken for it to work. And I think on this show, they really figured it out and, uh, and sort of got it going. And so this episode comes to conclusion. They're able to get off the ghost boat, obviously, um, there's some, some good action. Kurt like wrenches a door open with his bare hands. <laughs> you know, there's, again, we're getting kind of, kind of silly, a little bit goofy. Um, but it's, it's really, it's really fun. Uh, but so the ghost boat burns, um, Lena has to watch as her dad 
or ghost dad, I guess, uh, as her ghost dad burns on the ghost boat boat. (laughs) and and disappears. Um, But it's, you know, there's, there's some good emotions there. There's a bunch of, you know, footage of them back on the Magus when she was little that gets interspersed that, you know, shows that they had a cool relationship and, and everything. It's, it feels like something that probably could have been developed over multiple episodes, but since they didn't have multiple episodes, they just all kind of dumped it into one. And so I, I don't know how effective it is at building Lena as a character, but it, it certainly does something to establish that. Um, unfortunately, then she doesn't really have much to do for the rest of the season, yeah. which is unfortunate, but uh, oh well. Uh, and then we come to episode six, which may be, as I said before, my favorite episode of the series. Uh, although the one right after this is also pretty good. Um, so this one, the the premise here, they're continuing downriver uh, after you know finding Russ Landry and and getting some confirmation from him as well that Emmett is still out there. And uh, as they are continuing their journey up the river, they find. Dr. Emmett Cole's camera bag. So they, at this point in the show, uh, according to, to what we're told, they've gone through all of the footage that was found on the ship. And, you know, it, it basically leads up to when they left the Magus, and then there's nothing after that. So it hasn't been especially, uh, the footage, while interesting, hasn't been especially useful in hunting down where Emmett is. So they arrive at a place that they've talked about pretty extensively in the show called Sate Falls or Sati Falls, um, which they, is a location that from the tapes they knew Emmett was trying to get to. Um, they arrive, and of course there's there's no Emmett, right? There's nothing there. But what they do start finding is artifacts, remnants of you know Emmett's stuff. So they find his Swiss Army knife. So they know he's been around. They dig through the falls, and they find his camera bag with more tapes right yeah and so this is an episode quite literally of all of our main characters standing around in a room watching the tapes and they're highly entertaining (laughs) yeah the i can completely understand somebody being like no no we can't have an episode where a bunch of people stand around and watch footage from other people but for found footage, this level of meta narrative that we're getting to now of found footage, footage of people watching found footage, footage uh, is just great. I love it. I think it's just above and beyond how great it is. Um, but so we, we pick up after the Magus was beached. Um, everybody's trapped on it. Nobody knows what to do. We're introduced to the rest of the camera crew now, which is where uh, Oren got uh his buddy katie richardson a little bit more work mm-hmm. um i don't know did you recognize her oh yeah immediately yeah and that it, voice it's, it's pretty obvious yeah you can't can't mistake it so you can just hear her uh, arguing with her fake boyfriend immediately <laughs> um so uh we have katie richardson from uh, the paranormal activity series uh, she shows up here as another camera operator on this doomed expedition uh, nicknamed Rabbit. Uh, another guy named Manny. Excuse me. And then, of course, uh, Russ Landry. And uh, Emmett has, has continued experimenting 
with uh, various forms of magic. We see him send his spirit out through the dragonfly and then come back. Um, but now, basically, he's decided that he's going to push into the jungle on foot. Magus is beached, so he can't stop. He has to keep going. Um, but while he was out uh, exploring in his dragonfly form, he heard a tune, a whistled song. Um, and here's, I guess, where it's also revealed that he was still sending footage or trying to send footage to Lena, who was, was serving as his contact sort of back on the mainland. So she has to do a bit of explaining there to, to justify why, uh, you know, he was still talking to her in these tapes. But she's like, I didn't see these, so I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Obviously, I never got this stuff. Uh, but we do get to see Emmett and, and Russ... Uh, Landry sort of have their falling out that eventually leads to their separation so we kind of get some backstory there um, and then the rest of the episode is really Emmett's journey inland with these other two camera operators um, so this one for me uh, you know I, I know we've talked about Blair Witch already but this one really felt the most sort of Blair Witchy of all of the episodes Yeah, some of it has to do I think with the setting you know whether it's the you know woods outside of Burkittsville or it's you know the Amazonian jungle, Amazonian jungle, it's it's three people with two cameras out in in a scary location, right? And so that's that's really what we get here, and it's it's awesome. Um, this is the first episode where we really get to see Emmett Cole in action outside of just the the very the brief flashbacks, yeah. exactly. And, you know, we see him, you know, finding water out of vines. He's eating some kind of ant that tastes like bacon. That, that gets referenced mm-hmm. like four times in this episode. Um, again, an attempt to build a little bit of levity and humor. But we get to see him sort of doing his thing and sort of being this highly motivational explorer. You know, the almost the, the Les Stroud, you know, Bear Grylls type guy yeah. here. But he he's also establishing here's where the show sort of leans into what I'll, I'll call its core mythology, which is that there's a group of people in these woods who have access somehow to, you want to call it eternal life, you know, this, the, the whatever, but this group is, is who he's kind of searching for and who he's been sort of dancing around. And this symbol that we've now seen on Lincoln's necklace and, uh, it's referenced in this one that Lena is also marked with it, which we get confirmation of. Uh, this symbol is sort of like in the jungle. There's that really cool shot of him standing in front of this grove of trees that's had these little cuts in the trees mm-hmm. that, that create this symbol that, of almost wings. And then he's standing in front of it and he has the wings. It's just, it's, again, found footage generally gets accused of being lazy and non-creative with how it sets up its shots for characters. And this one shows that it doesn't have to be that way, right? This episode shows that you can use the found footage, you know, sort of framework to still create really interesting and compelling shots. And that's exactly what happened. So as they're, they're sort of having these discussions, they start hearing this sound and then something starts rushing at them uh, through the jungle. And uh, we, we very quickly discover that something is, is hunting them. 
some kind of force, which again, I think Jahel names at some point in the episode. I don't remember exactly what. But uh, we also get to see Emmett uh, sort of brush off a pass from, uh, from Katie. Yeah. From paranormal activity. Uh, she is obviously a fangirl. They established that really almost right away that she's a longtime Emmett fangirl. And they're out in the jungle by themselves. She makes a pass. She references the wife, says, hey, you know, I thought you guys were separated. And he kind of touches his chest, says, not in here. And, and of course, you know, Tess just melts in the room, which I thought was, was a really lovely moment. Again, from this point on in the episode, because we're about, you know, 15 minutes, 20 minutes into the episode, uh, everything goes to hell, and it's pretty much just Bruce Greenwood and a camera for the rest of yeah. the and it's great. Like this episode, I saw a lot of people online complaining about the nature of the footage in this episode, that a lot of it would not be, you couldn't actually get it, right? This would not be footage that you could actually have. And and I'll admit, it's this one stretches the, the found footage stuff. But they're also on a, lot. on a magical river in ghost boats. And, like, I've already suspended my disbelief for a lot of more heinous things in the show. So I'm, I'm willing to believe that they can get some of this impossible footage. Yeah, I, if, you're, if you're going to be worried about that kind of stuff at this point in the series, I think you're, you're probably, you're in the wrong place, maybe a little bit. Um, but... You should tell uh, yourself it's, it's really just cool. a show. I should really just relax. Really just relax. Exactly. Um, you know, but but really what we're doing here is sort of trying to architect out where Emmett Cole has been for the last, you know, couple of months. Because he's been missing for six months. And presumably the Magus went, went down about a month into this journey. So where's he been and what's he been doing? So this is sort of starting to fill in those gaps. Again, we get a lot of really cool like Survivor Man type stuff. We see him fishing with, uh, you know, a sort of simple line that you keep in the pack. Uh, we get introduced to his dog, which is really cool. Um, which leads to a really powerful moment at the end of the yeah. episode. Um, but ultimately, Emma gets betrayed. Um, they get chased by this thing, uh, which Jahel calls a demon, you know, who comes to kill you. Uh, Manny gets separated, and in probably the most horrific moment of the series, maybe save for a couple scenes in the next episode, um, he gets skinned alive and hung from a tree, uh, which they find, you know, later. Um, very, you know, again, just really nicely done. You know, a little, maybe a little bit predator, you know, kind of kind of call back. But uh, Rabbit, she decides to take the, uh, the equipment and she just ditches him in the jungle by himself. <laughs> um, and, and she takes off. So, so she's, you know, immediately made the villain, which is, is a bold choice, I guess. Um, but here we get to see Emmett sort of really exercise his you know, survival skills. Um, his dog is with him. Um, he begins sort of communicating with the demon as long as he whistles. It seems to leave him alone uh, as long as he whistles a sort of response tune. We uh, see him conjure fire again. 
because he can't get a fire started by traditional means, uh, which is an interesting mystical moment. But the the really like the the make or break moment in it is he has he busts his ankle because he's he's crawls up into a tree to try and get a fruit, falls, busts his ankle, so he can't really walk anymore. And we really get this like come to Jesus moment where he's like, I don't want to die here. Yeah. Um, and so we get two key scenes. He considers eating his dog. Which was terrible. Which was awful. Like he's got the knife that they find at the falls and he's he's got it at the dog's throat and he can't do it, which is like, oh thank God. Yeah. We didn't need to see that. <laughs> no, no. Um and then of course we get a scene where he has a sat phone and he's allowed enough for one call and he calls Lincoln and talks to him and Lincoln is just dismissive and brushes him off and it's like dad I gotta go to work or I gotta go to school or whatever and you know he's literally sitting in the jungle dying and Lincoln has no time for him so that's like a real moment where Lincoln is like oh geez I didn't realize that he was dying in the jungle when he called me (laughs) whoops my bad um but yeah it was just really cool i i don't know i'll let you talk about bruce greenwood for a little bit because i've talked about him way too much but man he's good in this episode i i liked all of this because that was my favorite part of the first episode um was just everything that had him involved um I thought that at one point I, I kind of stopped and I was like, well, I am just watching people watch television at this point, but I guess, mm-hmm. I guess I've done sillier things. Um, you know, I've watched YouTube commentary videos and movie reviews, so it's, it's not that far off from watching other people watch TV. Nah. But he's just, he's very compelling and, and I guess... I had a hard time throughout the show with one thing, and that was buying that he was not uh, perfect because he really does seem kind of perfect. (laughs) And then in this episode, I'm like, God, you're so cool. (laughs) Wish you were my dad, Bruce Greenwood. (laughs) Yeah, like it's, again, there's a bit of a conflict here. It's like, you see this guy in action and, and we've obviously been shown moments. He gets into a fist fight with Russ over like continuing forward. So we, we understand the ambition of this guy, the, the drive kind of thing. And uh, I guess this is the episode two where they reveal. Yeah. Cause they're sitting on the riverbank and this is the episode where they reveal why he got into this in the first place. Um, Cause they had, he and Tess had had a child, a daughter, who uh, died a week after she was born because of a heart defect. And he just lost it and had, you know, it was like, how do I go on? What do I do? And, and it was Tess that got him out into the world again. She started filming them while they were out doing things and got the show. And then they, they had Lincoln after that. And so, like, he, he really sort of discusses his purpose and where he came from. And, and we really kind of get that sort of much rounder picture of who he is as a character. Again, it's not as deep as it could be. It's, it's still very sort of surface to medium deep 
in terms of character motivations, but it's it's totally enough for me to see this guy as you know basically this this sort of great man, right? Like that's really what they're trying to build up here, and it's 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 working hundred yeah. percent. Um, but I just again in terms of network television, I I've never seen anything like this. Right, a show that is just a guy with a camera out in the middle of the Puerto Rican jungle <laughs> trying to, you know, create compelling moments. And then a whole bunch of people sitting in a room watching this footage. <laughs> like it's just I the again the, the the intersection of the meta narrative with these with what's going on with these characters is just it's just something else. Um but I love that the characters like Tess and, and Lincoln basically realize that they're about to watch Emmett die. And so like, all right, everybody leave, we're just gonna watch this alone. And then he gets rescued and saved again by another native group of people that's probably handled badly um but he is is rescued by this group of people he mentions that they have a ritual flaying that they do um right underneath the shoulder blades that is supposedly to remove wings or make it look like wings have been removed like they're angels uh which cool enough concept right the whole you know nephilim idea uh you know is, is totally fine um, but they rescue him, sort of nurse him a little bit back to health and then drop him off seemingly at some kind of research facility that is in the region. And then the footage ends. But now they have a very clear direction on where Emmett is. And if Emmett was indeed rescued by those people, there is a very good chance that he is still alive. Uh, so here the, the episode narratives all sort of congeal, right? We've kind of been running a you know series of dual stories you know where's Emmett been what have these people been doing and now we're kind of slammed back together so from the footage they're able to piece together enough of of where this facility might be that they leave the boat head inland and find it and the episode ends with them finding it but the facility that they find uh, as well as the dog uh, which is great they get to have a dog now um, but the facility they find is not the hustling and bustling research facility of the what they saw in the video it is now a, a decrepit and run down facility in the jungle uh which really leads us to our last two episodes which are, are almost a i mean it's really could have been one episode i don't know if it was aired as a single episode but it, it really could be um so episode seven the experiment uh takes place at a some kind of research facility wherein uh, people who in the, the show are identified as cannibals have uh, run amok. Uh, so uh, I'll let you, before I say anything about this episode, what did you think of, of what I'll call the hospital episode? This was probably the most horrific, like as in horror movie uh, mm -hmm. of the entire series. Um. Yeah. I wasn't really prepared for that dramatic shift in tone because um, it, it felt like it uh, the action sort of shifted again a little bit and it was less creepy and more more just outright, you know, terror. Mm -hmm. But I really enjoyed it. I think that it was a 
I think that it was a welcome change because the last couple of episodes felt, you know, like they were spending a lot of time with you know, fleshing out Emmett Cole and who he was, and it was nice to kind of pick up speed again right after that. Yeah, and this episode is is exactly that. Um, every episode has given us some crucial background on at least one character. Um, and this one, if anything, we focus on uh, Brynaldson, who, again, is very enig- enigmatic in the series. We don't know exactly what he's up to other than he's there to, quote-unquote, protect the source. Um, but here we find out that he was in a relationship with another security person, guard, lady, thing. I don't, I don't know what their job is. Specific mercenary, I guess, maybe. Who was at this facility... And that uh, they were in a relationship and they were going to get married. And she was sent to observe this facility and what they were trying to do. Reynoldson is here to observe you know, the Cole family and what they're trying to do. And and here the, the stories kind of converge. But So the basic setup for this is inside this hospital, they go inside, everything's destroyed. Um, it, it feels a little bit 28 days later. You know, sort of got that feel to it now, so it sort of feels like they're hitting that tonal thing, but with you know their own particular style. Um, and they they discover you know a, a locker full of dead bodies. Yeah, which was gruesome. It was I mean, extremely gruesome. Fair, it's gruesome. Uh, again, this is 2012 uh, on on network television, and we find a meat locker full of paying human bodies um, that Lincoln has to repeatedly go in and check to make sure that one of them is not his father, which, yeah, I mean, that's that's rough. That's a little yeah. bit on the rough side of things. Um, but uh, as, as they go through the facility, they basically find that in the, the tunnels underneath it, there are a group of people who have become infected. And there is a bit of a clunky exposition dump about halfway through the episode. They find a, a laptop that's not completely destroyed, which I find very difficult to believe, but whatever. Um, and they hack it <laughs> so that they can find some research footage. And in essence, what we, we learn is that this experimentation, uh, the experiment being run at this facility was on this local tribe, right? the same ones that saved Emmett. And they, they are, are dissecting those people and what they discovered is that they had some kind of incredible, you know, slow aging or healing properties, right? This tribe is, is uh, there's like a scene of uh, a guy on an operating table and he's in his you know, 50s or 60s. And they're like, he's got the heart of a teenager, you know, that kind of Because <laughs> you can tell that. Um, yeah, you can just see that. There's no plaque on the arteries. He's like a teenager. <laughs> um, it's like he's just drinking Yoo-Hoo all the time or something. Um, but uh, and then they were trying to come up with some sort of retrovirus that would, you know, be able to be consumed by a human or, or injected into a human, and adopt the same properties. But Kurt's girlfriend, was, who was there to stop the research if it got too far, interferes, releases the virus before it's ready, and then it turns a group of them into these these raging cannibals, including her. Uh, who then presumably ransacked the facility. So the likelihood that Emmett has survived this this event is low. So everybody gets pretty despondent again. Um, 
there's a really great scene where they think they're being signaled from another room and and it's like a signal mirror and so they all like sprint over there and they're like oh it must be Emmett it has to be him and then they get there and it's just like a wind chime hanging in the window they didn't see so that that was really good I thought that the series of like you know because the whole series at this point has been about finding Emmett Cole and they keep teasing it and then being like nope <laughs> nope and it's 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 really good they do it a couple times in this episode and it, it continues to sort of like ramp up the tension uh but this one feels the most like a sort of modern found footage horror film right there's a lot of dark hallways there's a lot of you know direct single point lighting with flashlights um it 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 reads a lot almost like as above so below like it feels very much like that tight corridors you know very limited lighting um Quick movements. There's a lot of a lot of gunfire in this one. Is Kurtz, you know, using his his weaponry to, to take these things out? Really good scene. They're, they have to go through this tunnel to get to another building, and they find out that that's where all of these things are sleeping. Yeah. And they have to creep through the tunnel. Very tense. Really well done. And then Kurt stays behind because he finds the you know the body of his his love. Oh. And and. And then you just hear like an entire <laughs> clip of bullets being <laughs> being emptied, and he's like, "We won't have to worry about that anymore." Whatever. And it, you know, it's it's good. It's 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 a nice like. This is the most action packed of all, pretty much all of the episodes. I would say easily, this has got the most sort of like direct action in it. Um, but then they do finally find Doctor Emmett Cole. Um. But in what state do they find him? Unconscious and cocooned. Cocooned. Um, so this whole idea, like the dragonfly, the the you know the insect, kind of comes full circle here, and we find that Emicole has been cocooned in a protective shell during this time of trouble by something, by himself. Did he cocoon himself? Did the I mean I guess it's it's sort of presumed that the dragonflies cocooned him, right? Whatever connection he has to them, because the room that he's in is just full of them. Um, but yeah, he's he's cocooned, but he is very much alive, right? They find him alive in this this sort of hibernating state, and there is some some old footage cut in where he talks about how nature will always find a way to survive, and, you know, even on limited resources, kind of thing. Um, and that's kind of like the big reveal of this this episode. They find him and they get him out and get him back to the ship and, and start trying to nurse him back to help. But he's in some kind of coma, uh, probably from being in the cocoon, I guess. <laughs> that's <laughs> so, what happens when um, you're cocooned. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, it's normal. Um, but they make it back to the Magus in, in relatively short order. And, uh, you know, presumably they're safe. They're on the boat. They're taken off. Um, there is a confrontation between Rabbit and Tess. They they find Rabbit at the facility. She's still alive. Uh, she had wound up at the same basic place, and everybody is very angry with her for leaving Emmett alone in the jungle. She's apologetic. You know, she makes it out alive, and then uh, a couple of zombies survive, including Reynoldson's girlfriend. And and Rabbit gets moited badly she gets eaten <laughs> we get to see the blood just sort of like spread out over the deck yeah uh as as she's killed 
Uh, and then Kurt gets a, a sort of moment where he has to, he tries to, to talk to his, his former love and then is forced to, to kill her and the, the other zombie as well. Uh, although, you know, he doesn't kill that because uh, it's Emmett that wakes up and kills the final zombie as it's attempting to eat Lincoln. Um, and, uh, and that's it. Cole's back, right? We've, we've got him back. And uh, that leads us to our, our final episode, the, the end of the series, the end of, of, of the show. Um, but it, it really is the one that attempts to kind of wrap things up. And I think it does an okay job. Um, they're obviously hoping for a second season, but at this point, I, I think they kind of had an inkling they might not get one. And so they, they did try to, to put some closure uh, out here for us. Um, but we, we get a lot of interviews with everybody asking what they think about, you know, how, to, how do you think about finding him and how everything has worked. And then finally, you know, we get, I don't want to say answers because he seems very cagey. He doesn't want to talk about his experiences. Um, but Cole basically says, you know, I, I'm kind of done here. I think we need to leave and we need to not ever talk about any of the things. <laughs> I don't ever want to talk here. about these things. Yeah. Like I, I never want to think about these things or talk about these things again. And uh, you know, that'll, that'll just be, that'll just be that. And then interrupting a heartfelt conversation between uh, Emmett and Lincoln. Uh, Lincoln is shot through the glass of the boat. I really didn't see that coming. Killed. What's I really that? didn't see that coming. I really didn't. Like, no. That was very um, surprising. Like, whoa! Yeah. TV show just killed the guy. I mean, I... <laughs> they immediately undo it. You know, whatever attention is brought about by his death is... It doesn't last long, but still, I was impressed that they were just like, "No, we're gonna shoot him." Yeah, we're we're gonna have him die. Um, I I didn't buy that nobody could figure out who did the shooting. Yeah, that was like there are only a few potential suspects here, and and only one guy has guns. Uh, you know, and I I guess. It, it does get revealed, I suppose, but the real thrust of the episode is that now that Lincoln is dead, what are we going to sacrifice to get him back? We, we happen to be in a mystical, magical, super-duper, supernatural place that can bring people back. So, uh, so what are we going to do about it? So Tess agrees to, to undergo a ritual uh, to to bring Lincoln back and Jahel becomes a sort of conduit, a funnel for the spirit of the Boyuna, uh, the river souls, I think they call them. And, and they ask for Lincoln to come back. And I mean, in terms of like one of these kinds of scenes where you're, you're hosting a sort of seance, if you will, it's not bad. Yeah. No, it was um, fine. Like it's it's pretty good. And then of course the the really, you know, interesting scene is is the waters, you know, sort of rush into the room where Lincoln's body is being held and they overwhelm him and, and he lives again, right? Uh it's a this is a cool sequence, right? This whole thing. It's it's pretty good. Might be a little bit of um 
you know, Ouija, the origin of evil, you know, yeah. that's not a found footage movie, but, you know, just that tone and tenor of, uh, of stuff. And I, I love that, you know, Emmett knows immediately what's going on and he's like, this is bad. We should not be doing this. Please stop. Please don't do this. <laughs> and everybody just sort of ignores him because they've had their own supernatural experiences at this point. So, you know, he's not the only guy with experience in dealing with these things. Uh, but Lincoln's back. He, he, you know, he returns, uh, but he's altered. He's changed. Uh, spirits have, have changed him. Um, but here we get the, the last couple, you know, pieces put into place for our characters. So we found out Jahel is her mother, I guess, was also a sort of powerful psychic. Her dad is kind of done with her being out in these places, though. He wants her to leave, go back to civilization, um, you know, go to school, you know, sort of get away from these powers because uh, they, they tend to, to ruin uh, the women in the family. Um, but really, for this, this last chunk of the show, uh, Lincoln is the antagonist. Right. He's wearing a black shirt. <laughs> um, he wears light-colored shirts before, but now his shirt is black. And we know that he is bad. It's his darkness. Um, that's right. Um, which I, I kind of like, because it does allow the character to express some ideas that we know that they've they've had, but in a you know, slightly more violent way. Um, but now we get the, the sort of flip. They've been watching all this footage of Emmett, to figure out what happened to him and then we get the reverse where Emmett is watching all the footage of what they've been through so he can kind of understand their journey and and what's been happening which is, is kind of interesting i liked that part a lot I, it's really cool um and then i guess the the big reveal of this episode is why Emmett and tess were estranged in the first place so why is that um remember that wait what or am i not remembering it correctly didn't she have an affair with the producer guy she did she did but they yeah. mentioned that i felt like they mentioned that pretty early on so i i wasn't shocked by that yeah i think it was heavily implied that uh i don't know if it ever was said specifically i don't remember. i don't know maybe i just made the connection because there were a lot of lingering looks with the two of them like a lot of oh for sure a lot of touching a lot of tension and i just assumed that it was him so i don't know that that threw me for a loop because i was like wait a minute wait a minute were we not supposed to know that because i knew that <laughs> yeah i think uh, you know the show is is it's not subtle in how that and uh, in, in how that gets laid out for us but it is confirmed here and I guess it's confirmed that Emmett was aware of what was going on. Um, and, and that was sort of what was leading to, you know, the rockiness in his marriage. Not so much on his part, but definitely on Tessa's part. And, uh, you know, I think... I don't know if the show needed it. Like, I think it would have been perfectly acceptable for the family to be estranged just because of the nature of the work and being gone and being, you know, in these, these various places. I think that would have been fine. But 
adding the additional compounding factor of you know there was there was an affair and it just happened to be with this guy and, and all these people were sort of thrown back into the mix again I, I think it was an interesting drama again if they'd had a second season this probably would have been explored and and they would have had to deal with it and just kind of move past it um but we don't we don't really get that here so instead we just sort of get the the terminal point as these characters just kind of say all right that's that's in the past we need to we need to move on uh, we do get to see Lincoln beat the crap out of Kurt, which is fun. Um, Long time because, coming. You know, he's he's evil now. I mean, I, as much as I like Kurt, there are several points where I did kind of want to see his ass kicked. Yeah, he's so confident yeah. and cocksure throughout the whole thing. It it certainly was nice to see him get a little bit of comeuppance, especially from scrawny little Joe <laughs> Anderson. <laughs> um, but ultimately, it's Lincoln. Uh, it's it's Emmett actually who takes Lincoln down. He. Eats him over the head with a pipe, <laughs> which you know, Ouch. always fun. And uh, then they strap him to a table, and it's exorcism time. And that is is how this this series ends. And and this with... part is silly, but I kind of like it. I I don't know. I thought it was. I have this thing about if a television show or a movie kind of ups the the ante really early which this one did the show just came out swinging that the finale needs to at least match that initial energy and i feel like this one went a, a little bit beyond because it's like well you know what oh yeah. we're gonna have a fucking ex- exorcism we're just gonna do it right yeah just do it <laughs> um i'll i'll reveal a, a, a dirty secret of mine and that is i just love exorcism stuff i just love it i i i have watched that totally garbage rennie harlan exorcist prequel with stellan skarsgård so many times it's awful it's the one that they it's like the dominion prequel to the exorcist one that this they they made that uh paul schrader made it and the studio hated it so they had Rennie Harlan come in and do reshoots and re- and redo the movie, and they released that one, and it was awful. So then they had Paul Schrader come back and do his version of the same movie again, and then they released that one, and I have both of them, and I've watched them so many times. But that's Just, okay. I, it's okay. It's a, it's Everybody just, it's a needs dirty track. little thing that I like. We're all just raccoons. So I just, I love, we all just need some trash. We just need some trash. And and so, like, I, I just love them. I like the mechanics of exorcism as it's shown on film. I know it's all BS, and it doesn't matter. Um, have you watched 30 Coins? No. It's an HBO, it's a European HBO production. It's all in Spanish. Um, the guy who did it, I'm, I'm not even going to attempt to remember who it is because I don't know his work well enough. I know I've watched other stuff that he's done. Um, but it's it's 30 Coins is what it's called. It's on HBO Max right now. And it's it's a it's about a priest in a small town in Spain. I think Spain. might be Portugal. I don't remember. Um, but it's it's just all it's wrapped up in the idea of like the 30 the 30 coins given to Judas Iscariot right and these coins have like actual power 
and there's all this exorcism stuff and demons and it, it's pushes it's, the it's buttons. Done really, <laughs> yeah, it's it uh, it pushes all the buttons. It's it's done very seriously, probably too seriously. It's it's not quite as silly as something like this, but um, I watched the first couple episodes a couple nights ago, and and again, it's just it's right up my alley. I'm like, yep, this is all good. I like it all. It's great, um, but. Yeah, I, I'm with you on this one. It's it's silly and it's kind of goofy and it's so over the top. And again, the found footage stuff breaks down a little bit here because you know, would would the camera guys still be filming at this point as Lincoln is is uh, telepathically holding Lena to the ceiling and uh, ripping her shirt open? Like, would they would they not have put the cameras down and, and attempted to restrain him? And they got to get the shot. They got to get the shot, man. I'm going to get my Peabody. Um, anyway. But so they 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 are, are doing this exorcism, trying to figure out how they can, can save Lincoln from this, this horrible fate. Um, and of course they do. And, you know, the, the show sort of, you know, comes to its conclusion. And they're, they're reaching the edge of the Boyuna. And it seems like they're going to get out. And then... They don't, and and that is where the the show ends. We get the mirror, <laughs> yeah, and and we get the mirror of the shot that ended the first episode, as it sort of arced up over the boyhood, and you see all the the various channels and waterways and how confusing it is and maze like, and it goes up one more time, and now you see you know the boyuna shifting, literally changing its path in real time, and there's no way out right so you can see exactly where they would have gone with the second season um you know deeper into the boyuna new secrets you know obviously more with this um you know tribe of individuals who might be angels in some way and the various groups that are trying to exploit them like you can there's a lot of meat on those bones that you could dig into for future stuff and obviously with kurt and he obviously works for some kind of group that's trying to protect this stuff and keep it from getting into the world um you know there's there was some mythology there was a lore book that somebody wrote for this that never got to be fully explored which you know i imagine is probably for the better i can't imagine we would have gotten into them and thought that all of that stuff was cool but it, this is the stuff that feels very glenn morgany to me yeah right it, it feels a lot like the millennium group from millennium and, you know, just all of these you know, arcane forces hiding in the shadows trying to fight some invisible war. Um, and I love that stuff. I do, too. Oh, man. Like that's, I'm all about Those that. are my buttons. <laughs> yeah, like the invisible war that goes on behind the surface of the world. You know, that kind of stuff is great. And it's because of the X-Files. Um, like, I'm like that because of the X-Files. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and I, I think I would say a lot of people are. You know, like, that was one of the first television shows for me that really dealt with that um you know obviously it came out in the 90s where everybody was sort of anti-establishment anti-government anti you know anti the man and so we were all looking for you know the cracks in the in the world that we could peer through and see the truth right i mean that's that's really kind of the 90s in media in a nutshell and it was a formative time of watching stuff for both of us and so I think, you know, shows that do that and sort of touch upon that, I, I think, are, are ones that I instantly gravitate towards. 
this being one of them. Um, so I guess we'll just move to kind of a wrap up. I, I don't know if we need to necessarily like, you know, put a failure piece score on, on a, a series of television, but I think we can kind of come down on, you know, why did this fail? Right. As a show, it's, it's got good heft to it. It's legitimately, you know, scary or, or at least, you know, spooky at times. Um, good performances, some great performances. If I'm, really being honest, definitely out of Bruce Greenwood. Everything that he does on screen on this is magic. Um, to the point that I would watch a show of him as this guy going around the world and finding magic in nature. Like, I would watch that show. I was really as, excited when he showed up as a character because it's like, yeah, you know, we get to see him do things, but then the show was over. Exactly, right? That's what the show was building towards. And we don't really get to see the payoff of, okay, they're all back together now. How is that dynamic going to, to move us forward? And maybe the show wouldn't have been able to execute. It's entirely possible that it wouldn't have been able to execute. But I kind of feel like it would have. Yeah, definitely. I kind of feel like it would have. So, so I guess what is one thing that you think would have set this show aright? What could have made it penetrate the world of, Grey's Anatomy and uh, find that pop culture success, if anything. I have been thinking about this, and I, I'm just... I don't think that you would do anything that would improve the show. I think anything that you would do to it would make it worse. But I guess if you wanted to make it more approachable, it seems like the sort of interpersonal character drama on you know even something like a procedural cop show was really really popular then so i wonder if maybe giving this a 10 season a 10 episode season or a 12 episode season would have given it a bit more space to develop and hook people um which is weird because you would think that most audiences want just the plot but i feel like this is a show where it has so much plot that it actually needed a little bit of the opposite. And that that might be, I mean, if people are watching Grey's Anatomy, that's a show that lives with its characters, that lives with, you know, right. the people. The plots are incidental. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the X-Files, too, eventually got to that place where it was more about the character drama than it was about the monster of the week. That's quite literally why we started calling them those episodes. So I wonder if, if even just giving it one or two more episodes, even just that, where they could have developed just a little bit more between the people on the show, if that would have given it something extra. Yeah, I'm definitely in that ballpark with you. The main thing that I, I thought would, would have helped this show is, is time. Um, it's, it's a show that, that is spilling out, like pouring out of its eight episodes. Um, and while I feel like in those eight episodes, it doesn't always make the best choices. As we mentioned, the third episode is, is pretty weak. Um, seems like a stopgap filler to get them into the final run of, of where they really felt they were going. But yeah, this is a series that frankly just needed more time, time to build its characters, time to flesh out its world, time to flesh out its mythology. I feel like the, the exposition machine of the show where they're trying to explain things got better as the show went on, but it really relied upon 
the you know the the found footage itself like that's where most of the exposition came from was characters in a camera or or footage that they that the characters on the show had found and were watching which is a bit of a crutch or it came from Shahel um who you know while it is shown at the end that she's some kind of psychic and that she's connected to these places she's opened herself up to the spirits i think is what her father says um but she is used as exposition way too yeah. much in that show like it basically something's happening she looks around with her eyes wide and says it's this and everybody's like oh <laughs> like okay you are 15 yeah <laughs> I don't care if you are opened up to the world. Do you have the language, the verbiage to understand what you're being told and the context for that? I don't. Um, I would have much rather have seen Jahel and maybe her father knowing more. Because, you know, they, they established that the dad was like the engineer for um, Emmett's crew for, for years, right? Like he was on all those adventures just in the engine room and keeping the boat running. So I would have much rather him be sort of like an interpreter and in between where, you know, she has an impression that something's going on and then he's actually the one that like articulates it and says, Oh, this is the legend of so-and-so it's still a bit of a, a storytelling crutch to have them constantly deliver the exposition. But I think the only other way you could get around it would be to have them interacting with more characters than would be realistic, right? Because you, you would be coming across, you know, a guy in a boat on the river who is like, oh, it's this, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but I think, yeah, this show is is one that quite literally, I think, just needed more time to breathe because you could tell they had the plot of getting Emmett Cole back and then revealing key things up until that point that they wanted to get through. And in the last four episodes, I mean, literally half of the series, everything is overshadowed as they're doing that. And it's one, we get a little bit of breathing time in the last episode, you know, apart from the exorcism stuff. There really is just a lot of character, you know, talking and what's going on with you and how are we going to move forward and you know, all that kind of stuff, which I think is, is really solid. But it's just, it's, it feels constrained, but even in those constraints, I think there's really a glimmer of something here. And I think it, as I said at the beginning, I think it's one of the best examples of, of how found footage storytelling can do really interesting things. It also, unfortunately, painfully illustrates the things in which it fails at. And found footage is obviously not ideal for everything. Right. It just isn't. Um, I honestly feel like the thing that this show needed more of was just the documentary style interviews, right? Because that's the kind of stuff that would have been happening if they really were legitimately trying to make this into a show. And I feel like we get the most, you know, bang for our buck, so to speak, in character development when those moments are happening. Um, and I think it would be a better way to deliver a lot of the exposition stuff. I agree. You know, and so I feel like more of a lean into the faux documentary component of the found footage would have been a smarter choice. But, you know, I can't, I cannot imagine the complexity of trying to tell a story like this in the machine of 2012 television production of the 
the I'm sure just the hoops that they had to jump through to convince them, oh, we need 15 more angles for this scene that we're going to set up. And we're going to shoot them on really good cameras because this is television. But we're going to make those cameras look like garbage with filters after the fact. Like, that kind of stuff, I I know some, you know, executive somewhere was bristling every time they looked at the bill for that. Like, why are we doing this? You know, the, they only need one camera. It's like, well, no, the, the story says that they have two different cameras from two different angles. And then we got GoPros all over the ship, right? So we need camera angles for all that stuff, too. And it's it's just... Like I said, it's it's a really interesting and complex problem, but it this show more than anything makes me think that found footage as a genre, as as a, a legitimate way to tell interesting stories, is viable. And and I, I really want to see somebody do something else interesting with it. I really want to see like a found footage science fiction story, like a really good one from the future with all of this, you know, modern camera technology just kind of floating around or something. I think that would be really fascinating. Um, I wrote a story not too long ago that was found. It was, it was a, a narrative about a girl kind of lost in a, it's almost like a Jurassic Park situation, but the entire thing is told through ob- observing footage of a camera that she had with her at the time. Nice. Yeah, because it's like a character who got an email and all this video was attached to it and they're watching through those emails. And it was just a really interesting challenge, but yet at the same time, I was like, oh, it's, this could be a really cool way to tell stories, just describing these things and seeing them play out. And so, I don't know. I, I have a lot of affection for this series. I think it's really, really solid. It's not perfect. It's a little bit goofy. There's certainly stuff in it that if you're not on board, it's not going to work hard to get you on board, but I don't know. It worked for me, man. I was all about it. Um, it did for me too. I, I certainly wish that I would have seen it when it was on the air or at least close to when it aired. Um, Cause now I'm just looking back thinking that's a bummer. That could have been cool. Yeah. But you know, at the same time, I imagine that I would have been incredibly disappointed that it didn't continue. Yeah, and I, I was. Um, I, I was really bummed that they, they decided to kill it. I mean, the writing was pretty much on the wall, I think, even before the show finished its its full air, that they weren't going to do another season. But um, I, I just, man, it, it, was, it was definitely one that I felt was a missed opportunity. But again, I, I'm not sure the audience would have been there for a show like this. I'm not sure if people would have gotten on board, given what was typical in uh, stuff time you know I, I think this is one of those shows i kind of hope does show up on a streaming service somewhere you know so that people can just kind of casually come across it because i think it would find an audience today um but whether or not that would matter i don't know I, this this seems like a show that would be perfect as a netflix series though like something along these lines i agree um and uh, maybe I'll just I'll, I'll shoot an email or I'll DM Jason Blum on Twitter and be like, dude, River. Put it on Netflix. Coming to, coming, coming. I know that Blumhouse has a good relationship with Hulu. So I put that shit on Hulu. Yeah, Hulu doesn't have anything. They need help. Yeah, they, they, anything. Anything's fine. <laughs> but again, dear listener, if you are interested in The River, it is streaming for free over on uh, ABC.com. Go check it out. Uh, at least the first episode. Because I think the first episode 
even if you don't want to watch the whole series, I think the first episode is still worth watching because, uh, again, it kind of stands on its own. It's this nice little encapsulated thing that tells a cool story, has some neat shots in it. And then you can just walk away safe and sound, but uh, having experienced a bit of the found footage masterpiece that is the eight hours of invisibility. All right. Well, I guess that wraps it up. Do you have any final thoughts? Anything else you want to add about uh, the river? Any recommendations? Um, let's all just support Bruce Greenwood. He's a pretty unproblematic guy is from my understanding. It seems that way. And, and that's refreshing. Yeah. Um, he's not attempting to uh, mutilate any of his beloved ones. Um, he is, uh, not an, an abuser by all accounts. He no seems like a solid. Yeah, he seems like a solid Canadian dude. Yeah. And, you know, what more can you ask for, really, uh, other than just being a good... That's just Canadians, though. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's just it's kind of how it plays out. But, um, yeah, I, 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 it's, this show is worth watching... For Bruce Greenwood's performance yeah, as Emmett Cole. I, I will say that as the bare basic. If you have any affection at all for Bruce Greenwood, for John from Cincinnati, if you have any affection at all for him, uh, this show, if you missed it, uh, it's completely understandable that you would have, given what happened. It was a blip. Um, it, was, it was definitely a blip. And it's this is worth putting your eyeballs on. It really is. Uh, ironically, I know we mentioned like the the Knots Landing soap opera. Bruce Greenwood was on Knots yeah. Landing. I don't know if you yeah. remember that. Like he, that was one of his you know early shows. Uh, he was on Saint Elsewhere too. I don't know if you remember that. I don't. I don't. That was, I think yeah. I'm. Oh, which, you you probably didn't watch Saint Elsewhere. I watched that with Molly. I think I'm. I think I might be too young. Slightly, only yeah, slightly. That was like. You would have been like seven, and there's no way you would have sat through it. No, no, I sat through Twin Peaks because that <laughs> no was funny. Way. That was good. Yeah, Twin Peaks was amazing. Um, but yeah, he was on there too. But but anyway, Bruce Greenwood's great. Uh, this show's great, and uh, I hope people eventually find it and uh, and do you know cool. Hey man, you know you know you know you get one of those articles on like what inverse or whatever, and it'll be like a show that you should watch before it leaves abc.com right now. Yeah. Uh, or whatever. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's it's just something else, man, and it, and just a, an absolute oddity, a complete. This never should have happened or been a thing, in terms of network television that ended up being pretty cool. I guess we will we'll call that the end of our, our discussion and breakdown of The River. It's a great show. Uh, well worth your time. Hopefully you give it a shot and uh, enjoy it as much as we did. But So where can you be found on social media? Kathy? I can be found at Baskinator on Twitter. Very nice. I, of course, can be found at TBaskin on Twitter. You can get us at F-Peace Theater um, on Twitter as well. And uh, if you need to get a hold of us for uh, any reasons, you can email us at failyourpeace at gmail.com. All right. Uh, we will see you next week for another discussion of films, cinematic failures, the train wrecks and missed opportunities of Hollywood that perhaps are still worth your time. Because if it can't be a masterpiece, it might just be a failure piece. So we will see you next time. Bye-bye.